Yes, hello and welcome to yet another session of our Corona meeting at the Corona Committee 146 meeting. And uh, yet they continue to lie. That's a text from uh, Elena Gorodova. Uh, we know that they know that they lie. They know that we know that they lie. Um, but yet they keep lying and we keep pretending to believe them. Well, we don't believe them, but many others uh, do. And it's actually fascinating to have uh, this jungle of lies and people not wanting to know that uh, has become rampant in this country over the past three years. And it's incredible to think that it was not so long ago that we um, had it completely different and people thought they lived in a democracy and felt very safe. And now, uh, you think that there is uh, some kind other kind of connection, but um, it is uh, not very clear yet. Okay, it's important to be participating. I would like to share with you uh, if there are people from Basis. We have the national convention of the Basis party. So please come on, join in. Many people should uh, be participating. And I would like to point out that many people think that not voting is something that uh, takes away the legitimization from the state, which to a certain extent is right. But what you do not keep in mind is that when it comes to financing the parties, there is quite a bit of money, 280 million euros, I think it is, that is to be distributed. and. At any rate, it's a huge amount of money. And this is for all parties that uh, come along and they participate in that. And then, of course, there is an upper limit. And this is like the GEZ. You can say uh, if you do not wish to uh, help the parties that uh, are currently in power and that if you vote for another party then the other parties will get the uh, per funds as long as they manage to get past the five percent hurdle so we have about 30 percent of people who are not voting that does have a certain impact on the financing structure of the parties when I say, she said that this is uh, in Germany, the money that you pay to the um, national broadcasting services. Okay, that's basically all I wanted to share with you. <clears throat> Today, we have interesting guests. We have a data analyst and MIT professor who has been involved in developing process safety management methodologies for healthcare, pharmaceutical and oil industries. And we will talk about uh, how COVID was handled in Israel, what effect it had on the world, and how all studies of menstrual cramps and fertility damages from mRNA injections cause serious bias by their study design. And then we have a meeting with a lawyer and a tax consultant about his observations as a trial observer in proceedings against a doctor who has been in custody for 10 months for issuing false vaccination certificates for the first time. Fundamental and important questions are being negotiated in these proceedings, such as the question of whether the Infection Protection Act is applicable at all, or whether the Genetic Engineering Act is more applicable. This is something that um, is interesting, new movement here. And then we have a former U.S. military intelligence officer who is going to talk to us about the current state of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, especially in light of Seymour Hersh's revelations, which again 
raise the question of Germany's political sovereignty when an attack on its own infrastructure by military allies causes no consequences. I think we will learn a lot today and I will now continue speaking in English. Nice to see you. Hi, everybody. Okay. Yeah, so let me just say a few words about you. You are a data analyst and professor of operations management um, at MIT, and you've been involved in development operational risk and process safety management methodologies for various organizations in the healthcare, pharmaceutical, and oil industries. And you are currently, you lead a multi-year U.S.-China collaborative effort to develop new um, predictive risk analysis and anal analytic tools and testing technologies and platforms to address core food safety challenges in China. So you've been basically all over the place, like with regards to what you're working on. Maybe would you like to add a few things? Um, yeah, about I'm actually my presentation, my presentation will start with talking about my background. So I can just start my presentation yeah. and the first part will, uh, will be this, saying a little bit about my background and my interaction with COVID related uh, uh, topics. So uh, hopefully I will make that clear. Uh, so. Okay, super. so you tell me when I could start. Uh, you just go ahead. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen here. Uh, and um, Okay, C can you see my slides? I can see your slides. They're not yet on the big screen. Yes, now they're on. Now they're okay, okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, thank you, everybody. Uh, I cannot see uh, all the people um, um, that are listening to us, but I want to thank uh, all of you for taking the time uh, and engage. Um, and <clears throat> let me start by um, saying a little bit about what I hope to accomplish uh, today and also a little bit about my background. Um, so uh, as uh, was mentioned, I'm, I'm, I'm a faculty member at the MIT Sloan School of Management from 2006. Um, but um, it's fair to say that academia is my second career. And um, I, I was born in Israel and, and had a career in the Israeli military as an intelligence officer almost 12 years. Uh, so many, many, of my, many of the things that I do as, a, as an academic today are still being impacted by um, some sense uh, or lens of intelligence which I think it's, it's quite relevant when you analyze data related to the COVID-19 pandemic and um, some of the indicators that we see uh, and how we interpreted them. Um, I, think, I think that that kind of was covered. Uh, that's maybe not interesting. I, I do want to emphasize that uh, throughout the years, I've been working on a broad range of domains, but you know, there is some common traits to all of them is I, I tend to, I work on, on applied problems and with, with uh, actually close collaborations with industry partners and government partners, and you, and you can see some of them here. Uh, I'm, I'm really focused on the use of analytics uh, to inform the design uh, operations of complex systems that have a lot of uncertainty and risk. And I've been working on many areas related to um, human health, uh, including work with health systems, work on safety and quality of manufacturing of biologic drugs, um, uh, issues uh, related to food safety and health related to food and so forth. Uh, when the pandemic started, I started to, uh, quite, quite immediately, I started to engage on various activities related both to research and academic research. And I've, I've written multiple papers and still write 
um, and do research uh, related to different aspects of the COVID-19 uh, virus, the pandemic, the management of the pandemic, uh, including the vaccines, um, but also <coughs> engage in, in different outreach activities in which uh, I was uh, supporting both the state governments in the US and uh, over the last several years also engaged with uh, decision makers in Israel where I was born. Um, and I will hopefully share uh, some of the perspectives that I have uh, from uh, the engagement in Israel and what are the lessons that can be generalized uh, to um, the rest of the world. Um, <clears throat> and I think that I did in the context of COVID-19 is, is essentially in the fall of 2020, um, we were among, my school was among the uh, few schools that brought students back to in-person uh, learning. And I was uh, responsible to set up all the operational and safety protocols under all the uh, constraints that we had to face from state and, and, and federal uh, regulations. Uh, we were able to bring uh, and have um, uh, students, uh, no, I wouldn't say normal normal, uh, low, normal learning, but uh, hopefully better learning than just sitting at home. Um, I'm also holding uh, multiple uh, leadership positions at MIT, uh, but maybe that's less important in, the, in this context. So, so what, what do I hope to accomplish today? Uh, I, I would like to um, share with you my perspectives from Israel. Uh, and um, I'm going to kind of go chronologically from the start of the pandemic um, and sort of maybe have two, um, you know, two major periods before and after the vaccine. So the before was mostly lockdowns in Israel, like many other countries. And then after it, uh, it was uh, mostly around the vaccine deployment. As you know, Israel was the first one to launch a, a national vaccination campaign. Uh, it was also the first one to launch uh, the booster vaccination. Um, and then I, so, so, so I'm going to take you through some of my insights. And again, I'm going to try to generalize them uh, to some more general, general insights about both the efficacy paradigm of these of the vaccines and the safety paradigms of the vaccines. And then I hope uh, in the last part of the talk today or the, the discussion today to talk a little bit about some insights related to the potential impact of uh, the COVID-19 vaccines on pregnancy outcomes. Um, and talk maybe a little bit about some of the fundamental biases that I think we currently have uh, in, in many of the studies uh, that were published on the topic. So very early on in the pandemic, uh, I, I, I think uh, the insight that <clears throat> this, <clears throat> this pandemic impact or this virus impacts uh, people in a very uh, wide range of uh, risk levels uh, was clear and uh, <clears throat> all other people, uh, people with comorbidities were dramatically more uh, um, having more risk from the virus than young, healthy people and definitely children. Uh, but unfortunately, um, and, and that kind of translated to very rigid uh, COVID-19 uh, lockdowns, uh, COVID-19 driven lockdowns, <clears throat> most governments basically adopted a very narrow metric of really monitoring uh, COVID-19 infections and maybe COVID-19 hospitalizations. And that was also the case in Israel. And <clears throat> these metrics were, were then justifying uh, very severe lockdowns, especially uh, including keeping uh, children out of schools. Um, and Israel, unfortunately, was leading um, you know, a, a leading policies and driving policies of this type. So one of the very first works that we did in Israel was essentially 
to basically propose a, a much more holistic approach to thinking about health uh, that once you adopt, if you consider lockdowns, you understand that lockdowns are very detrimental and, and actually disastrous. Um, and we, we primarily wanted to focus on uh, not on comparing health impact or health outcomes to economics outcomes, which is another important domain of, of metrics. We actually wanted to <clears throat> really think about the health per se, the, the impact of human health. Um, and, and the concept that we employed is a very common concept from public health that is called loss of life. Uh, uh, so so I'm, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to take a minute to introduce the concept and then tell you what kind of work we've done to essentially assess the collateral health implications of uh, uh, the lockdowns. And we did it very early, very early in the pandemic. We, we, this was done during 2020 uh, and was presented to the Israeli government. Uh, unfortunately, uh, did not get any uh, tangible tractions in, in changing the policies. <clears throat> so what is loss of life? It's, loss of life is essentially uh, is, is a way to think about a, 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 um, uh, about a, a holistic metric to inform public health and other health-related decisions, where essentially you're looking on <clears throat> the course of the life of a person from the moment uh, you know you're bo you're born, you're a baby, then you become a, a young grown-up, you you might become a parent and getting uh, gradually older. And then towards the end of your life, you, you actually are quite old. And essentially, uh, and what, unfortunately, people die at different stages of their life. Uh, and loss of life is essentially a metric that for each death <clears throat> tries to assess uh, what is the expected uh, number of uh, loss of years of life uh, that uh, were incurred by this death. So clearly, uh, if you if if you're a young person at age of 18 and you are expected to live uh, until uh, your 80s and you you unfortunately um, were killed by you know let's say in a, in a war action uh, then we will assess that there were about 61 years uh, lost right uh, if you are a mother that uh, you know in your 40s that were unfortunately killed in a car accident. Again, you're expected to live until your 80s. That, that's going to be counted as 41 years uh, loss of life, and so forth and so forth. And and why why is that important? Uh, this is important because when you uh, actually consider uh, most of the deaths that were incurred by the uh, COVID-19 virus, whereby were of people very old uh, with a lot of comorbidities. <clears throat> that on average had three to six uh, years expected life remain to them. Um, and on the other hand, lockdowns impacted the health of mostly or primarily uh, health, uh, young people uh, and really uh, shortened the lifespan life of, of young people. <clears throat> so using this framework, we actually analyzed based on the literature what uh, is the impact on loss of life, of lockdowns, of losing uh, days of school, of not doing uh, uh, wellness uh, uh, medical exams or diagnostic medical exams. We kind of did a very comprehensive uh, analysis. Um, and our findings were very, very um, clear and dramatic. We actually showed that the loss of life uh, caused by the lockdowns is likely to be hundreds, if not thousands times more than all the life lost by the COVID-19 virus. 
Um, and again, this is kind of taking into consideration that um, again, I'm 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 not trying to uh, minimize debts of older people, uh, but as a society, when we make trade-offs and we we actually manage risk, <clears throat> we have to consider the broader impact of what we are doing, and we have to consider uh, uh, younger people uh, impact on the life of younger people and shortening and causing debt among young people and children. Uh, you know, I think uh, that's something that should be both ethically, but also uh, you know when you just want to kind of quantify health impact, you have to kind of uh, put more weight on those kind of losses. And uh, unfortunately, most governments uh, in the world did not adapt this holistic view of, uh, uh, of, of metrics that uh, should have guided their actions. Uh, and again, focused very, very narrowly on COVID-19 infections and deaths. <clears throat> and I think that that's something that was carried through uh, and kind of uh, impacted negatively the the um, soundness of many of the decisions that were made throughout the pandemic and and the lockdowns are are very very uh, uh, um, unfortunate example of that. I, I believe that the lockdowns have caused uh, dramatic damage to generation of uh, children and young people that I think we're gonna see the loss of life uh, impact over. Uh, perhaps multiple decades. Um, okay, so that was the, the first engagement that we that I had in Israel, and we kind of presented this again to the Israeli government, unfortunately, with no traction. Um, so now I'm moving uh, to talk about um, the end of 2020 uh, and the early of 2021, when, uh, as you know, uh, the clinical trials of the uh, COVID-19 vaccines reached um, uh, a, a point in which they were granted uh, emergency use authorization. Um, as you know, Israel was one of the first countries to um, uh, launch, I think it was actually the first country to, to launch a national uh, vaccination campaign. But maybe one thing that is not uh, known to people is the special situation and the special relationship uh, that Israel um, had and still has with Pfizer. Um, so Israel um, signed with Pfizer uh, four contracts. Until recently, we only had access to one contract, which is the one I'm going to talk about it uh, now. But very, very like a, a week or two uh, ago, <coughs> there was a, and we, we got access to the other three contracts that were signed that were more like focused on the purchasement of the vaccines and, and other aspects. Uh, and we're still analyzing them. Uh, many of them, many parts of them are re redacted, so it's it's not obvious how to analyze. But what what you see here is this is a contract that uh, was actually publicly available relatively early on, that really speaks on uh, collaboration agreement, research collaboration agreement between the Israeli Ministry of Health and Pfizer. Okay, and again, it's available online. It's, it's partially redacted, uh, but uh, here here here's Here's the goal of, <clears throat> of this project. So the, the goal of this project is to measure and analyze the epidemiological data arising from product rollout, this is the vaccine, to determine whether herd immunity is achieved after reaching a certain percentage of vaccination coverage in Israel. So essentially, the Israeli government committed to work with Pfizer <clears throat> to vaccinate as many people as possible in Israel 
driven by the concept of vaccine-induced herd immunity, we now know that, that is, that's a failed uh, concept. Uh, but, but what is more striking that the Israeli government here is taking a, a goal that um, does not necessarily put the uh, uh, um, benefit and the well-being of its citizens uh, up in front, but uh, makes a, commi a commitment to a, a vendor, in Pfizer in this case, that they are supposedly uh, have to regulate it. Uh, th this collaboration also included some regular data sharing <coughs> that Israel shared with Pfizer about vaccination rates, about infection rates, and so forth. And, you know, surprisingly, uh, the, the data sharing did not include any formal definition of safety data. Uh, and what we know also that the Israeli uh, top officials of the Ministry of Health um, have been meeting with Pfizer people on a regular basis, <clears throat> did research with them, and in fact actually wrote papers with them in the academic uh, literature uh, on the efficacy of the vaccine. And, and that kind of created in Israel um, a very, very uh, problematic uh, situation in which um, the boundaries you would expect that uh, will exist between the regulator and the vendor uh, were completely blurred and gone away and created, in my mind, a uh, major conflict of interests. Um, now, the, the, same, the same officials uh, then actually went and presented to the FDA and promoted uh, a lot of the uh, policies around vaccines. Uh, and Israel was kind of, uh, in all uh, practical matters, a, a, a worldwide lab uh, for Pfizer. And if you actually look on many of the submissions of Pfizer to the FDA, they rely on data that was collected in Israel. Um, so th this was all formalized. Uh, there's, there's more to say about these agreements. But one of the things that Israel did first, even before the FDA uh, approved, which is kind of unprecedented in Israel, usually, uh, I, I don't think there were too many uh, medical uh, products that were um, launched in Israel um, without an approval of the FDA or at least another major uh, regulatory authority. <laughs> Israel was the first to launch the national vaccination campaign of the third booster. This was done in early August uh, 2021. Uh, and very quickly, this became uh, something that was deployed not only to the high-risk population, but in fact, to all people over 12, which uh, was very extreme. Um, and, um, you know, and again, officials from the Israeli Ministry of Health presented in the FDA uh, advisory committee uh, discussions that kind of informed the FDA. And I believe played a major role in actually convincing the US and other countries to move in that direction. <clears throat> I'm gonna say more about the vaccines, but I, I think that, uh, um, th there are many extremely bad decisions that were made around these vaccines, uh, but I, I think that going uh, with the boosters uh, was maybe one of the most radically wrong uh, decisions. <clears throat> and one of the things that I would like to kind of emphasize, one, one of the things that people were trying to use you know, in, in, in promoting the narrative of these boosters uh, was, oh, we give, we give uh, every year uh, flu vaccine. Um, but what is important to understand that the COVID-19 boosters actually primarily were not adapted to the uh, circulating variants of the COVID-19 um, um, virus. So uh, unlike, regardless of what you think about the flu vaccines, uh, at least uh, flu vaccines are presumably aiming 
not always be the good success, but they are aiming to, uh, to be adapted to the uh, current variants. Most of the boosters that were given uh, with COVID-19 were actually by design not adapted to the current variants. And in fact, I think that there is kind of cumulative evidence that not only that that made them not efficient against, uh, even in protecting against infection uh, or uh, severeness, it actually, um, this now cumulative evidence that over time, this could actually harm the immune system and make it overfitted to the wrong variants. And then when you are actually, um, when your body meets the current variant, you uh, are more likely to become vulnerable uh, both for infections and potentially also for severe illness and death. Um, <clears throat> so, so some data about, so, so since then Israel actually uh, launched a four booster and a fifth booster. So we, we have many, uh, especially older people that maybe have already by now received five, dose, you know, five doses of the vaccine, of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, you know, Moderna is the other vaccine that was used in Israel and um, I think AstraZeneca, but they, they were much more kind of on the on the margin. Most of the people were vaccinated uh, with with, uh, with the Pfizer vaccine. But as as I mentioned, what you see here, this is data actually from the dashboard of the Ministry of Health in Israel. Uh, on the right, uh, you see here uh, people below uh, below six, under sixty, and over sixty. Uh, and the, the three colors, the, the light blue is unvaccinated. The uh, green, light green is people that were vaccinated, but their vaccine is not considered by the Ministry of Health updated uh, because they didn't take the, the booster uh, frequently enough. And full vax people uh, are the ones that by now got like five boosters. I, you know, what you see here, and this is kind of number of infections per 100,000 people in the last three months, you actually see that the vaccinated and uh, both, both in, in, in the ones that are fully and the ones that are expired are actually getting infected uh, the same or even more than unvaccinated people. Um, so th this is clearly not a good sign for, uh, for these boosters. And uh, in a second, I will say some more about that, but that's kind of another sign of uh, how the efficacy paradigm of these vaccines uh, have collapsed completely. Um, so, you know, usually what people uh, now would claim, hey, at least there is some uh, protection against uh, severe illness and death. Uh, but, but again, when you actually look on the data, so these are a number of COVID deaths, uh, and there are many, many issues about how you define COVID deaths. We, we're not going to talk about that, but this is, this is again, early August. Uh, where the 2021, when the Israeli vaccination, uh, booster vaccination started, and see what happens immediately after that. Uh, it, it's, um, it's not unlikely that often, uh, given the boosters, uh, in fact, not only did not prevent that, but actually uh, escalated uh, the, the death rate. Um, and one of my conjectures is that, <clears throat> and I think that there's actually strong evidence when you actually analyze the uh, freedom of information documents of the uh, FDA on the clinical trials, I think that every time you get a, 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 another dose of these vaccines, uh, in the following weeks, you are actually more vulnerable to uh, be infected. So when you actually vaccinate in the background of uh, an infection, uh, community infections, you escalate and you um, enhance the wave, and on the as a result, you also create 
uh, more deaths. That could be one mechanism of, of, of an immediate impact of the boosters. And then we talked about the fact that over a longer period of time, I actually think that this is uh, causing your immune system to deteriorate uh, and make you, make you more vulnerable, uh, definitely against the circulating variants. Uh, I think that this is another example where you know many retrospective field studies because th th this this decision about the booster were not were never informed by randomized control led trials. Um, you know the the, the recent bivalent uh, 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 booster was the decision about it was determined based on um, experiments on eight mice, I think. Uh, but you know, and usually what people do, and I will get get back to this when I I'm going to talk about. Um, uh, pregnancies, they, they rely on retrospective field studies that I actually think are fundamentally uh, biased and really do not provide very relevant uh, indications. So before I, I talk about uh, the issue of pregnancy, I want to share with you um, from my experience in Israel and throughout the world uh, and my reading and my analysis of the uh, of the of the the entirety of the evidence, uh, I want to share with you a few thoughts about both the efficacy paradigm of the mRNA vaccines as well as the safety paradigm of the mRNA vaccines. Because one of the things that I think um, is somewhat misleading when when people discuss this, and this is uh, something that I see both in, in, in definitely in people that are trying to promote the narrative that the vaccine is uh, safe and effective, but also among people that <clears throat> maybe have doubts is that often there is some tendency to look on each piece of evidence uh, in isolation. So, uh, you know, you look on and a piece of analysis and you start arguing whether this piece of analysis is sufficient to show uh, something definitive of, on the vaccine. But I, I think, and maybe here I'm talking about, uh, about this, this a little bit as, a, as an intelligence, uh, someone that uh, was working in intelligence for quite some time in his life, that you know, at some point, you need to not just look on each one of the trees, but step back and look on the entire forest, meaning that you uh, you need to kind of ask yourself, what explains the entire evidence that I see? What explains the, all the indications, all the signals that I receive? Uh, and what is the big picture that emerges? And I think that we don't do that enough. And I would like to kind of uh, highlight a few uh, things about the, about the efficacy as well as the uh, safety of the vaccines. So, when we think about the efficacy paradigm of the vaccines, right, <clears throat> there are a few things that we need to actually uh, remember. One of them, they were never designed, were never, there was never real hope, uh, or they never tested to really prevent uh, infections or transmission. And indeed, they did not, right? Like we know now that basically over 95% of the population uh, in most countries were, were, were exposed to the vaccines, to, to the virus was infected and recovered, uh, most of them recovered, right? So <clears throat> that leaves the people that support the vaccine uh, claiming that, oh, okay, the, the value of these vaccines uh, and the efficacy should be evaluated in the context of preventing severe illness and deaths. Uh, but unfortunately, when uh, you look on the clinical trials and you analyze them correctly, and here I think there is a pivotal reanalysis re by Freeman et al, uh, in, uh, that was published in the Journal of Vaccines that really looked on the clinical trial, uh, trials of the mRNA vaccines of uh, Pfizer and Moderna and really looked on what I would uh, define as serious health harm events. Uh, that includes all deaths, that includes all hospitalizations, and that includes all life-changing health events. Um, 
And I think that that's kind of the right way to evaluate the impact of a vaccine in the context of severeness and, and deaths. Uh, you, you don't want just to focus uh, only on COVID-19 uh, driven uh, outcomes. You want to actually consider all the outcomes, all the health outcomes, because that's what you care about. You care about holistically about the health of people. So when they analyze the, the data from the clinical trial, which is the best quality evidence that we have, they actually found, unfortunately, that there are many more events uh, among the vaccine arm uh, participants versus the placebo arm participants. In fact, they, they assess that for every uh, 800 vaccinees, there is one more harm, again, death, hospitalization, or life-changing health event. So when you actually <clears throat> take this into consideration, you, you understand that basically uh, the clinical trials are giving us a prediction that if we launch these vaccines and give it to the entire population that is represented in the trials, we're likely to see more harm than benefits. And indeed, fast forward, when we look on the 21 and 2022, we see many population level indicators that raise major concerns. Uh, we, we, I'm, I'm talking about uh, issues like uh, indicators like uh, excess debt that has been increased in three years in a row, which is quite rare from 2020 to 2021 and to 2022. And the rate of increase is even also going up. Uh, that kind of by itself suggests that something really, really uh, uh, is going in the wrong direction. Uh, now, many health authorities <coughs> try to associate this excess debt which is the number of observed deaths versus the number of expected deaths to the uh, COVID-19 virus. And I think that that's actually not a believable um, uh, position uh, because if you believe that position, then you either um, are essentially asserting that in spite of very high vaccination rates and uh, the virus being becoming less and less virulent, we know that the Omicron uh, virus is actually not really causing deaths because of Omicron and maybe with Omicron, which is kind of a big difference. And, and in fact, uh, you know, that doesn't make sense. So you have to assume that something else is driving the debt, the, the excess debt. And, you know, um, we talked about the uh, impact of lockdowns, uh, but I think that in all likelihood, you have to at least consider seriously and investigate uh, what is the role of the vaccination in this setting. And I would say more about, <coughs> more about that in just a second. There are other uh, population level uh, worrying and concerning indicators like uh, increased rates of disability. Uh, again, with temporal correlation to the vaccination, there are uh, increased uh, deaths out of the hospital. <clears throat> I did some uh, research in Israel that really showed that in, in the first half of 2021, uh, parallel to the vaccination campaign and the third wave of uh, infections in Israel, uh, there was an increase of 25% in the national EMS calls with diagnosis of cardiac arrest among young people, 16 to 39. Uh, there, are, there are similar data from the UK, the US, the Scotland and Australia. Um, so, so there are many, many population level indicators that are very, very concerning. Um, so I, I think it's very questionable um, to claim that the vaccine saved life. Uh, and and at the most optimistic scenario, I think that uh, you know, one may be able to argue that maybe for a very, very selected uh, group of uh, people, very old and very fragile, these vaccines may have had some value for some short period of time. But I'm, I'm highly doubtful about even about these minimal claims about the vaccine efficacy. 
Uh, <clears throat> I already mentioned that they cannot be updated to the circulating vaccines. And this again, unlike what was promised. So when we, we look on the promised efficacy paradigm of the vaccines, one of what the mRNA vaccines, one of the promise was, hey, we will be able to update these vaccines very uh, quickly. Um, and uh, so, so that doesn't happen. And as I mentioned, uh, the, the, the notion of giving very frequent boosters seems to not help uh, with protection, but in fact, uh, increase over time the vulnerability of the people that get the booster again and again. The, the situation with the safety paradigm is not uh, much better. Uh, and again, I, I already talked about uh, the concerning population level data. But I, I think that it's also very, very important to emphasize the following point. mRNA vaccines, as many of you probably know, are not traditional vaccines in which uh, when I want to protect the, uh, the, the body, I show the body the virus that I want to protect against just uh, killed or attenuated or weakened. Uh, and essentially, I generate and prime an immune response that is essentially imitating uh, the immune response that I'm going to have when I'm going to be exposed to the virus. Uh, that, that doesn't that, that's not the approach that you take when you use mRNA technology. Essentially what you do, you are taking a, a, a genetic code, uh, wrap it with mRNA, uh, modified mRNA lipids to, to make it stable, and you essentially inject it to uh, the muscle uh, cells uh, in order to teach them to express the spike pro protein on their membrane and uh, essentially make the body now learn uh, about this foreign antigen, but while this is part of uh, part of the human body cell. And the most fundamental assumption in the safety paradigm of these vaccines was that, you know, you're toying with the, with the body, but this is going to stay at the, locally at the injection site and we be cleared from the body very quickly. Uh, and I think that now we have mounting evidence that that's actually often, more often than not, or perhaps, is not the case. So we have uh, already detected in autopsies, in biopsies, <clears throat> in other uh, tests, we, we detected uh, uh, even months after the injection, mRNA in the body, circulating in the body, spike expressed in, 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 our, in cells in the body, uh, including uh, complete spike in the blood of children that were uh, that, that experienced myocarditis. I will say more about that. And uh, you know, this is basically an indication that the safety paradigm of the vaccines collapsed, and we have to stop because that that basically means that we can find ourselves uh, with circulating foreign uh, antigens, and we know that the spike is the most toxic uh, part of the virus. And, and that can also explain the unprecedented range of adverse events that we see from these vaccines that essentially affect uh, all organ systems. Um, I think that just for this fact, we have to stop these vaccines immediately because uh, as a safety person, uh, when you have a, a safety paradigm that the most fundamental assumptions turns out to be incorrect, this is the time when you stop and you have to at least uh, reformulate a new paradigm and prove to yourself that, the, that there is a safety paradigm here. I don't believe that there is. And, and, and maybe the, the, just the last comment about this. The, the most, um, the most uh, outrageous, uh, I think, uh, thing that I see when we talk about these vaccines is the minimization of risk below any traditionally acceptable level of risk, especially even when you talk about people that have zero risk from the illness, from the virus, like children and uh, the young people, 
people uh, are taking uh, risk levels that used to be completely unacceptable and try to normalize them. And I think that myocarditis is one of the best examples. As you know, the vaccines now, you know, it's, it's not a debatable fact. They cause, um, 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 in some cases, uh, inflammation of the heart muscle or the surrounding um, um, uh, membrane of the heart. <clears throat> um, and even when you just look on the clinical rates that are now, again, not debatable, which is in the highest risk population, which are young males, uh, is one in 2,500 to one in 5,000 uh, cases. Most of them are getting hospitalized. This is really a serious, serious adverse event by any definition uh, that we used to have. That's already way above any acceptable threshold, way above. Like this is not even close, right? But this is even worse because one of the things that we know about myocarditis when we actually, if you read the decades of literature on myocarditis, you know, that myocarditis is hard to diagnose, and often, often uh, uh, people have very vague symptoms or no symptoms at all. So you have to be concerned that the clinical rates that you detect are actually uh, only the tip of the iceberg, and essentially you have many more people that are being harmed. Uh, this was actually a concern of the FDA. The FDA explicitly asked Moderna and Pfizer to do post-marketing studies on subclinical myocarditis. This, this is exactly the scenario I just talked about. Uh, among young people and children, and uh, what they uh, they were supposed to actually submit the results of these studies in February 2023. Unfortunately, the FDA just granted them another six months. But two studies that were done in Thailand and Switzerland that tested people, young people, children in one study, and young healthcare uh, health, health workers, uh, healthcare workers. Uh, before and after vaccination, uh, the second dose in, in Thailand and the third dose in um, Switzerland, they found and, and really tested cardio, cardiovascular indicators before and after the vaccination and compare each one of them to their its own baseline. This kind of uh, uh, revealed major percentage of people that were that had abnormal indicators and a rate of one in 30, one in 50 that showed clear indications of heart muscle damage uh, through uh, elevated troponin, uh, which is the major indicator, bioindicator for heart attacks and, and, and damage to the heart, heart muscle, right? Now, what does it tell us? This tells us essentially that uh, th these rates could be a, a one in 30, one in 50 people that every time they take the vaccine, another dose of the vaccine, they, they draw a, a Russian roulette uh, at the rate of one in 30, one in 50, to have a heart muscle and maybe a cumulative heart muscle. And uh, the long-term implications are, you know, not known, but we already have clear indications from autopsies, many, you know, including a study that comes from Germany, that uh, the, the, the scenario of induced vaccine myocarditis that leads to death is confirmed now by multiple autopsies. So, we are now at a situation when the mounting evidence here is essentially beyond any acceptable harm rate uh, that we ever, ever, uh, it's not even close. We took, we took vaccines off the market uh, with the harm of, of, of the rate of one to 100,000, one in 10,000. Uh, know, clearly, uh, given the, the zero risk that these, these, the younger populations have, this is, this is just no brainer. You have to stop these vaccines and you have to really uh, recalculate uh, and reassess what has happened here, what failed, 
and in all likelihood, um, this, this vaccine should not be ever used, and this technology should be kind of highly questionable for future use. Okay, so what I would do, what I would like to do in the last part of my talk <coughs> is to talk a little bit about the impact of uh, vaccines on uh, pregnancy outcomes. <laughs> Sorry, and this is again a, a topic where I think a lot of the uh, problematic behaviors that we've had and we've observed through the COVID-19 pandemics, uh, you know, really manifest themselves. So going again back to the clinical trials, a, a, a pregnant women were excluded from the clinical trials. In fact, uh, all the participants were instructed to use contraceptive uh, measures to uh, make sure that they uh, don't get pregnant. Um, some of them did get pregnant in spite of that, and uh, the results were never reported in a very clear manner, but like uh, when you look at them, you have many reasons to be concerned. Uh, but that didn't stop regulatory authorities shortly after the vaccination campaign started to recommend pregnant women to get vaccinated. <clears throat> that was the situation in Israel uh, in January, uh, mid-January 2021. Uh, this was the recommendation to do it after the first trimester <clears throat> with no safety data against every any standard that we had uh, in the past where basically pregnant women uh, were not getting any, any drug unless it was actually uh, absolutely necessary. <clears throat> the <clears throat> EMA, the uh, uh, European Regulatory Authority, have required Pfizer to conduct uh, a special clinical trial with pregnant women uh, that was supposed to enroll thousands of women. They only enrolled uh, hundreds of women. The trial was uh, was conducted was terminating uh, in mid 2022, and we haven't seen yet the results. And again, like in many many situations, uh, the people that are continuing to push the irresponsible, reckless recommendation, if I may say, to vaccinate pregnant women are suggesting that there is a mounting evidence of many studies, retrospective studies that show that the uh, COVID-19 vaccines uh, do not have any negative impact on pregnancy outcomes. And when I read all of these papers, it was very, very clear to me that they are fundamentally biased. And when you actually look at them in the right way, they are not reassuring as claimed, they are in fact concerning. And what I would like to do is to walk you through one example, one, one paper, one study that is coming from Israel, but the lessons and the flaws and the fundamental bias in this paper are is common to many, or if in fact most, if not all, the uh, current studies, reassuring studies that exist. That again, I think that are they are quite concerning. So <clears throat> this is a paper coming from Israel, from one of our major academic hospitals, uh, Hadassah in Jerusalem, and like many of these studies, this is how this study was conducted. They focused on a period of time, uh, in this case, December 2020 and July 2021. They looked on all the births that took place on that over that interval of time with some exclusions. So, for example, uh, these are some of the exclusions that they had in this particular paper. Uh, they did not consider any woman that had any indication of, um, of a, a COVID-19 infection. <clears throat> and then they looked on all of these uh, births and they look on births of vaccinated women and births of unvaccinated women. And essentially, they compared a range of outcomes between them. In a second, we'll, we'll go deeper. 
And what they concluded is that they don't see any increased incidence of, for example, preterm labor uh, or other uh, negative outcomes uh, between the, the, the births of the pregnant women, the births of the unpregnant women, uh, unvaccinated, sorry, the births of the vaccinated women and the births of the unvaccinated women. And um, that, that kind of uh, should keep us optimistic. So let, let, let's kind of dive in a little bit about uh, more about uh, the results. This is table one from the paper <coughs> where, among others, they report on, on preterms and uh, uh, this is stillbirth. This is when the babies died. Preterm is a delivery that took place uh, before week 37. Uh, and, and stillbirth, and again, there are multiple definitions, but stillbirth in Israel is defined <clears throat> any, any birth after week 20 uh, with a baby uh, more than 500 uh, gram or any delivery uh, whatsoever after week 22. And what you see here, here's the 2,305 vaccinated women. These are 3,313 3, unvaccinated women that uh, took, gave birth over the period of time that they uh, considered. And indeed, <clears throat> the rates, and you see, this, you see the absolute numbers of the events and the rates, uh, are not do not look like uh, any any different. Uh, they look about the same, not statistically different. So presumably, <clears throat> they use that to conclude that everything is reassuring. And what I would like to show you that, that that's actually a very misleading way to look on on their outcomes. And I'm going to start kind of uh, uh, raising the uh, kind of your your um, your concern by looking on table three from the paper in which what they did, they uh, took the vaccinated women and they split them between women that received their first dose of the vaccine in the second trimester and versus the women that took their first dose in the third trimester. And I'm going again, going to focus on essentially the, um, <clears throat> the um, uh, stillbirth, right? And what you see here is very, is very kind of striking, right? Uh, the, women that took the vaccine in the third trimester seems to have a significantly lower rate of stillbirths, it's 0.3%, versus the 1% and 1% in the unvaccinated on the right-hand side here, and the women that took their vaccines in the uh, first dose in the second trimester. Uh, by the way, if you, if you subtract the numbers between table one and table three here, you will find that there are 12 women that received their first dose in the first trimester. They are not counted in this table. <clears throat> they, they had their baby and six of them, 50% of them had uh, a stillbirth. So if you just look at it this way, you might conclude, hey, wait a second, like uh, the timing of vaccination seems to actually have a very, very significant impact on, uh, on the outcomes, right? And, and the stillbirth seems to be affected by the timing of vaccination. Um, and, and they should actually make us uh, concerned that something uh, is not right here in the way they look on the data. So before, 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 I, before I actually dive into continuing discussing uh, this, uh, this particular example, I want to do a detour and essentially explain to you what is happening here uh, by giving you an analogy from a completely different setting. So think about the, a, a marathon race. A marathon race, uh, last 42 kilometers. And let's imagine that what we are uh, interested in is to think about what is the risk of a, a runner starting the race 
not to finish the race. Okay, so th that's kind of one one thing that we ask ourselves. Now, suppose that on the 40th kilometer of the race, there is a, a water station. And now I'm also asking the following question: What is the risk of a runner that picked up a cup of water in the station to to not finish the race? And I I think that hopefully that's going to be intuitive to you that the risk of someone that picked up the water not to finish the race should be much, much smaller than the risk of someone starting the race not to finish the race. And why is that? This is just merely because of the fact that the fact that I picked up a cup of water in, uh, in the station means that I arrived to the 40th kilometer, and therefore I only have two more kilometers to go, and that's much, much more likely to happen than if I'm at the beginning of the race. In fact, I think if I would tell you that uh, the risk of people that picked up a cup of water not to finish the race was equal to the risk of people starting the race not to finish the race, uh, you would start to be very, very concerned that maybe something is wrong with the water that is picked up. Okay, so let's. So, so hopefully that kind of gives you an intuition. Now, how it, how does this connect to the example that we see now that, that of, of stillbirth? So this this connects to the fact that when you look on the risk of a stillbirth, it's dramatically decreasing as the gestational age of the uh, woman is advancing. So this is data from the Ministry of Health of when stillbirths are happening. Fifty-one percent of stillbirths happening in weeks 20, 20 to twenty-seven. Fifteen. Uh, 28 to 32, and so forth and so forth. So, for example, a woman that arrived to week 33 has, has essentially only about uh, 30, uh, less than 35% of having a stillbirth, right? Versus uh, versus maybe a woman that is in week 20, right? That maybe has 100, you know, still all the risk to tolerate, right? Uh, and why does this matter? This matters because when we look on the vaccination timing of women uh, during their gestational age, right? <clears throat> we basically see that many of them, this is data from a, a, an article, a study from Australia. We basically see, this is the second dose, we basically see that very few women vaccinated before week 20, then it starts to pick up, but many of them vaccinated very, very late in their, uh, their pregnancy. So this is equivalent to the uh, marathon runner picking up a cup of water at the station. Just the mere fact, even if the vaccine is neutral, the mere fact that they received the vaccine late in their gestational age, right, should uh, imply that they actually have much lower risk than an unvaccinated woman that essentially is at the beginning of the race. Like the only thing we know that this woman started at some point, we don't have any indication to what week this woman arrived. Okay, so let me just um, further illustrate this with an example. It's, it's a made up an exam, example, but hopefully uh, you will see that it's kind of inspired by, by what we see in the, in the field, right? Let's assume that we observe 20,000 birds. Out of them, 100 were stillbirds. So we have a rate of five stillbirds per thousand birds, right? And we are going to assume that the vaccine is neutral. And this is the vaccination timeline of uh, the woman. So 2,000 will vaccinate in, a, half of them will be vaccinated, 2,000 will be vaccinated in week 20, uh, 13, 3,000 will be vaccinated in week 28, 
3,000 will be vaccinated week 33, and 2,000 will be vaccinated on week 37, right? Uh, and what you see here in the green, it, this is the composition between vaccinated women and unvaccinated women at each stage uh, of, the, of the pregnancy, right? So let's just, <clears throat> again, uh, emulate an analysis of the kind that uh, the folks in the paper that I just, just I'm talking about uh, would, have do, would, would, would be doing. Again, and I'm just going to assume that the vaccine is neutral. The vaccine doesn't have any impact on, on, on the health, on pregnancy outcomes, right? So let's just look on these 51 stillbirths, 51% that will happen on weeks 20 to 27, right? Very, very likely a, a pregnancy that will end on this week is not going to have a positive outcome. Uh, but again, look, look on the composition. There are only uh, uh, 10% of the women that uh, are vaccinated and 90% are unvaccinated. So if I actually look on how these 51 stillbirths will be allocated between vaccinated and unvaccinated women, it's going to be 90% going to unvaccinated women and 51% going and 10% and going to uh, vaccinated women, right? Now let's just advance, right? <clears throat> we are now looking on the 15 stillbirths that will take place on week 28 and 32. They will be allocated in the ratio of 25 to 75% uh, based on the composition of vaccinated and unvaccinated women at the beginning of, of, of this week, right? And so forth and so forth. And if you did the calculation, you will actually see that you, given this analysis, again, assuming that the vaccine is neutral just because of the timing of vaccination, you will actually have three times more uh, stillbirths allocated to 10,000 deli deliveries of unvaccinated women versus 24 uh, allocated to 10,000 of uh, vaccinated women. So what you would expect to see is that the vaccinated women should have a stillbirth rate that is significantly lower than the unvaccinated women. And why is this concerning? Because that's actually going against what we see. We don't see that. We actually see the same rate. And the same rate basically means that this is uh, against expectation because depending on the specifics of, of the timing of vaccination and how many women were, were vaccinated, we should actually see a two to six times fall lower uh, stillbirth rates among, uh, among vaccinated women compared to unvaccinated women. And what we see here is the same. So that suggests, that suggests a very concerning signal that the vaccine, remember, if the, the water might not be actually innocent in the marathon, uh, a scenario that I, the marathon example that I told you, I, I think that you can actually uh, see this as a very concerning signal that the vaccines are not neutral, but in fact have negative outcome, negative impact on uh, stillbirth outcomes. Uh, and similarly to still uh, to preterm births, that by the way, they are associated with also uh, neonatal uh, uh, outcomes that are not favorable. Now, in this case, this is actually not the end of the story. It's even worse. So I want to draw your attention again. This is <clears throat> from the paper. <clears throat> Look on this exclusion. This paper excludes vaccinated women prior to pregnancy. And again, this is very common in many of the uh, other papers. And what is the problem with that? So let's just think about this. Uh, women, women, uh, um, women that were vaccinated prior to pregnancy means that they were at the very earliest, were vaccinated in mid-January and got pregnant by the end of January. And then since this paper is only considering uh, uh, births 
throughout July. They had their baby by July. So that's in all likelihood was a delivery after six, max seven months. So that, that, that's actually a, a, a very early, these are 22 very early delivery deliveries or births that are very likely to have negative outcomes. In fact, uh, if, if you want to actually get a, a conservative, conservative assessment here, uh, remember these women that vaccinated the first time in the first trimester, they had a 50% stillbirth rate because they had to, again, we are only considering those that had the baby by July. These women should have even a worse outcome than those women. So in, in a very conservative assumption should be that we should see here 11 uh, more stillbirths associated with vaccinated women that are not counted here. And the reason why this is really a big bias here is that, um, remember, there are unvaccinated women that got pregnant in the same time, end of January, and they some of them may have had their baby by end of July. You would count them against the unvaccinated women, but you're going to take them out of the analysis just because these women were vaccinated prior to, to, to pregnancy. You're going to create, again, another bias. So when you actually take all of this to account, you see that even the observed stillbirth rate in this case among vaccinated women is actually between 30 to 80% higher than unvaccinated. And this is when we expect to see actually the opposite direction of two, three times fold lower rate among vaccinated women. So this is extremely concerning. This is extremely concerning. And again, I think that the, if I want to summarize the bias here, the bias here is that just the mere vaccination is giving one bias is that the mere vaccination is giving you an indication that the woman arrived to a late gestational age in which the risk is significantly lower but at the same time also the fact that you are looking on a period of time in which women are starting as unvaccinated and then become vaccinated at some point during the study period that can create a dynamic in which the early stillbirths that happen mostly early stages in the in the in the pregnancy would be allocated to unvaccinated and more live births will be allocated towards uh, vaccinated. And, and this is going to create a, 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 another source of bias. So taking all of this into account, again, when you, when you do a study like that, you should actually see significantly lower uh, stillbirth rate and other uh, metrics that are related, like preterm uh, deliveries, in, in the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. When you don't see that, and in fact, you see more or equal, or even slightly lower, that's actually a very concerning sign. And again, this is just an example of how uh, broken uh, the scientific uh, debate on uh, COVID-19 uh, issues, and especially vaccines. We don't do clinical trials. We make reckless decisions based on no safety data. And then we justify those decisions with biased, fundamentally wrong studies that not only are not reassuring, but in fact, increasing significantly the concerns. Uh, and I think that this is just another example, again, that it, it calls for an immediate termination of this reckless recommendation to uh, vaccinate women. Uh, in fact, I believe that we need to stop these vaccines uh, immediately uh, and take them off the market and investigate what went wrong here uh, and how do we make sure that we actually provide people safe uh, uh, and, and uh, safe treatment and really follow the principle of first do no harm. Uh, so thank you for your attention. I'm happy to answer questions and have a discussion if we have time.
I have a question. <clears throat> These vaccinated women, um, do you know, we have this, I guess it's the same in Israel, that you only have to like two weeks after having received the vaccination, you count as vaccinated. Do you see that kind of bias there also in that yes. study? So <clears throat> I, I think that in this particular study, if I read it correctly, that was not the case. Uh, but we talked about the booster, the studies justifying the booster, that was definitely the case. So, so there was some delay, <clears throat> for example, in many of the studies that came from Israel, you would not consider giving, having the booster until six days after getting the booster. And if you died or got infected during these six days, you were counted as not having the booster. And they never, even when we asked them, they never were willing to disclose how many people actually were <clears throat> affected over those days, six days. Uh, in some cases, it was even 12 days. So <clears throat> I, I think that your point is very relevant to um, many other studies and issues related to the vaccines, but maybe not particularly to the pregnancy uh, or this particular study. I, sorry, may I have a question too? Yeah, Hello, absolutely. how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> um, I um, just want to ask, do you know um, a study which is, uh, you know, a prospective study? Do you know anyone in the world who did a prospective study uh, with this on this topic? So, because, because it's I very heard, yes. always when you when you are looking for cases afterwards when you did not plan it, yes. when you don't plan the conditions to compare, uh, it's very difficult. There are too many possibilities of bias. Yeah, so I think, <clears throat> I think that the, the best prospective study is a clinical trial that was conducted by Pfizer and was never reported. There are, I think, 300 women included in this trial or so, give and take. Um, <clears throat> I think that there are um, one or two handful of semi-prospective, but I think that they used really surveys and, 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 and questionnaires that, again, I'm not sure I would mm. consider them truly kind of reliable prospective studies. So, the bottom line is, like many other issues, I don't think we have very good prospective studies on this. Yes. And, and definitely not ones that control between vaccine and unvaccinated, right? So. Mm. Can I ask you, like um, in Israel, is there still a lot going on with regards to uptake of the vaccine or have people become more hesitant? Yeah, I think uh, by no doubt um, the, the, the uptake has declined with every dose. And I think that the fifth dose is, is really kind of small, especially among young young people. I think that older people are still more kind of likely to take the update, to take, to take the, the boosters. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the pe people are voting by their feet. And I think that that's kind of just, you know, I think it's actually an interesting insight that like people that claim that these vaccines are safe and effective, you have to ask yourself, uh, well, they're so safe and effective, why people decide not to take them. And, and in Israel, the striking fact was, so in Israel, in general, traditional vaccines have about 98% uh, adherence. So it, it's fair to say that in Israel, <clears throat> at least it, we didn't have any uh, meaningful community of people that fundamentally object to vaccines. Right. Uh, the first two doses, uh, the adherence rate was over 80% of the population. The adherence to the third booster <clears throat> was actually uh, shy of 50%. And this is in spite of very, very radical and aggressive green passport uh, policies. 
that basically you could not like go into the many public settings uh, without getting the booster. So you have to ask yourself why people that took the two first doses, meaning they were not like uh, fundamentally objecting to vaccination, would insist not taking the third one in spite of the fact that they would have to suffer major uh, limitations and, and negative implications, right? To me, the only explanation is that they were either harmed by the vaccine by the first two doses or new people that were harmed by, by the first two doses, right? Like, otherwise, I cannot, like, rationalize to myself why would someone, in spite of pressure, would not take the third vaccine, right, the third dose, right? So just I, I think I think that this is another indication to me that suggests that there is some unprecedented harm. And again, you know, we still don't understand all the mechanisms. We still don't understand what is the exact uh, impact. I think we need to do a lot of work on this. We also need to do a lot of work on understanding the mechanisms so we can actually take care of people that were harmed by the vaccine. Uh, unfortunately, there, you know, as you can imagine, there is reluctance to do that. Uh, but I think that all indications show you that something very wrong is happening here. I have just read an article by Mrs. Sasha Latipova, and uh, she she analyzed what she or she reviewed what she knew, knew about uh, the contents of the vials, and she she was was telling that um, there is a there is a there are many research there was many research done analytics done on the contents of vials, and they found very very different contents. What is in the vials is not always the same. There the vials are very different. Yeah. What, concerning the contents and they found dna they found uh, even plasmids i heard just heard that uh, there were plasmids in still in the found this this means there are this the stuff where they produce the rna they use plasmids and they even found in those plasmids they found uh, uh, genes for for antibiotic resistance neomycin canamycin so this is just a, it's a mesh they put into yeah. nanoparticles. It's a mesh they put into nanoparticles and they inject it and all this dirt, which is in the nanoparticles, may enter the cells. And we don't. If you have a resistance gene entering the, the cells, you have you have may have an antibiotic resistance transported by this. You may have so many different uh, risks, which are which nobody knows because there's no official control of the contents. It's it's the it's yeah. the it's the producer that that make reports to the to the administration and the, the administration has no possibilities and doesn't analyze the single batches. And we know from 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 verse from the data from verse that there was such a big big difference and some some batches were very dangerous and others didn't do anything. And I have no explication because there are so that there are so many people that don't feel anything. They got the jab, they got another one, and they don't have side effects. There are two reasons that that they do not have that the side effects did not yet appear, but that there may be later some. But uh, there may be or or that they people couldn't because there was they were damaged in a way that they they did not see the the connection between the jab and that, or that many jabs didn't contain anything. And do you have any research on it? Is How is it in Israel? Do you make, is there a control what is in the vials? And uh, 
Do you have uh, the batches registered when you find such cases, when you find cases where something happened? Uh, is, a, is Do you have the number of the batch and do you find some relation between the number of the batches and, uh, and the side effects you observe? Do, is there some research on that in Israel? Yeah, so <clears throat> this is actually an area where I, I mean, actually, not, not, not variability, actually, I recently uh, wrote a paper, not, not in the context of, of, of actually uh, the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, so I think that all the points that you are raising, um, I just want to maybe highlight a few uh, aspects here. One of them is, I think that there, there is a lot of evidence that the, the purity control of these products was basically non-existing and subpar. And I think that there are worrying concerns of, a lot of impurities that the overall health implications are are not clear yet, but it's it's very it's very clear that it's not uh, following uh, what we would expect. Uh, good clinical it, standards. It, it was a, a clinical standard. but, but in fact, it's actually worse than that. So when you actually approve a biological drug or or or, or like a vaccine like that. It's not just the approval of the therapeutic uh, content, it's also a, an approval of the manufacturing process, right? And uh, I think, I don't, I don't think that people understand, but the, the clinical trial was based on uh, vaccines that were produced based on process one, whereas the emergency supply that followed the, the AMA, the, the, the emergency use authority, the EUS, sorry, uh, the EUA, and 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 going forward was actually um, was actually um, uh, was manufactured by, based on a different process that is called process two, and process two was essentially very minimally tested in the clinical trial and was never reported separately. There was another trial that took place between February 21 and February 20 uh, and July 21, in which they presumably uh, tested the stability of the of the commercial loads. But I and the, and the results they claim that they are reassuring, but I actually I'm I'm highly questioned about that by that. But you have to understand that up to June, so, so the statement that this vaccine was tried or was tried was experimented with forty thousand people, which is the, the yes, the, it's actually think, uh, questionable yeah. because it wasn't the same manufacturing process. So I, and in all in all fundament in all traditional standards that that would not come that would not pass. Uh, without additional trials that are specialized and are done with the vaccines that are manufactured based on the commercial process. So yes. I, I think that this is more. There's more to come on this. I think that I think that this is a very another very concerning area. Yes. Again, I don't think we understand all the implications, but we understand that this is something that was conducted very wrongly and against all standards. And in Israel, yes, we do see as well uh, these these lots that seem to have a much higher concentration of, of uh, deaths and and, and 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 very serious adverse events. So uh, there is some I think we from this in Israel. I think we shall try to find people who tell us something about the protection of this stuff and about the the, the practice of control or of non-controlling. So we need we need those researchers who are dealing oh, with yeah, the, I, I with the contents. Someone that is, I'm, I'm actually doing active research on this. I can tell you this this was not conducted based on uh, what you would expect. Uh, now, I think that the next step is to understand what are the health implications. That will take some you know, it is, it is in, in most countries, most countries, I think, uh, I mean, and there's some indications that Pfizer actually precluded countries from testing what 
what is in the vials that they they get that they, that was even not allowed by the contract. Yes. So, it's a, so it, might, it might be it might be that it would take some time, but I think that that's another very important area. I agree with you. We have to think have to have in mind that what we are what we are analyzing now the numbers the effects of something given of something injected there is something injected and we count some effects but we don't know what is injected we don't know the exposure yeah, I, 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 we, I, I, if you I if you normally observe something some you 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 know what is exposed and then you count the dead or you count the what, what happens but here you don't know how people are exposed we don't even know who is exposed and who is not exposed and i think we should have we have, should shed some light on this question and we should try also here in the corona just to find people who can tell us about that about the control about I the safety that. of this of this drugs i think it's very important also for political reasons because there are responsible but people who have to watch for the quality and if we can show that they did not watch that they did just let those stuff be sold and used by doctors i think that that, a, i think uh, i think it's very clear that the regular mechanisms that you would expect to see did not happen i think that that's clear the question is yep. uh, in my mind is like uh, what is the health impact that's something we need to investigate okay mm. um, we have to go in details there i think it's a good topic. I, I agree with you. I fully agree with you. I have a question. Okay. This plus okay. meets, uh, Wolfgang, that you mentioned, is can that be coincident that that is in there, or I mean, like stemming from some I, sort I of think, production I process? That, I think that this is very recent data, as, as far as I actually read the article. I, I I just don't think yet that we know what are the health implications. What is the frequency going to be? I think there is more to study there. Um, it's definitely not something that's supposed to be there. It's an impurity, and it seems that the impurity is at a level that is not is well beyond what you would allow uh, under regular circumstances. So, so it's clearly violating the regulatory thresholds as of safety. Yes. Now, now yes. again, it, 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 you know, understanding what the exact health impact is, I think uh, um, the, the, our colleague here said, I think it, it's very, very true that it's going to be tricky to understand because. You don't know now necessarily uh, what was in each lot and how it was translated. But frankly speaking, uh, potentially these these tests exist somewhere. Maybe Pfizer. I mean, potentially there are some tests that Pfizer did. <clears throat> One would assume, and, and getting this data would be very very important. In fact, I think that the regulatory uh, requirements uh, suggest that they have to disclose this to the regulatory authorities. This data, so it, it's possible that the regulatory authorities also have this data per lot. And, and having that and connecting that to the outcomes per load might actually give us a hint uh, about uh, what is happening. Uh, I, I think going forward, we, we need to continue because some of the and these findings are currently on bivalent loads, which yeah. are active. So we potentially can do that also in real time. So just to just to explain it a little bit to the audience, this is when when this RNA, this nucleic acid is produced. It is produced by the use of of uh, plasmids, and it's produced within. It's it's they breed it, and uh, when then afterwards it has to be extracted, and has to be yeah, cleaned. Purification. It has to has to be purified. Purified, and in the in the production process there are also indicators. There there are antibiotics used because you have to separate the bacteria who did it and who did not. You want to you want to extract and which one not sometimes you sometimes you one, one approach to multiply their uh, uh, the mrna is through bacteria like you sometimes there are different approaches to actually do that 
So I yeah, think they... you're absolutely right. I think I think the, the point is what what people kind of the high level need to understand in every biologic drugs or whatever, like he, the, the purification is a critical step in the in the process that you want to make yes. sure that the therapeutic uh, substance is extracted with no uh, impurities that can actually risk the yeah. uh, the patient. And this is a major uh, source of concern for any drug. Uh, and this and is a lot what... of scrutiny is being put on, and it seems that here there there were essentially no no you know no control um, you know minimum to no control, and and that's kind of by itself is a failure. Now again, what yes. we still don't understand what are the health implications of that, but it's definitely extremely concerning. So. Well, I have like two questions from the audience, um, because you are in the position now, you're at MIT, and, um, you know, people were wondering if you have been bothered, or why is that maybe not the case that you, you know, like come forward with this research or this analysis, and then also that you can basically speak out, um, have you been, I don't know, attacked by your faculty, or how has that been? Um, no, I, so, okay, so, um, I was attacked, but no, my, I was attacked in social media. There are fact checkers that are still attacking me. Um, there are groups of people, including from the Ministry of Health uh, in Israel, that are trying to retract some of my papers. Uh, so so I'm, I'm, I'm still fighting some of these fights. But actually at MIT, um, again, maybe people think to themselves and not, don't tell me, but actually the, the, the reaction I did get from faculty were actually positive and supportive. Um, I think that MIT recently <clears throat> approved the Freedom of Expression Declaration uh, that really kind of speaks for the right for uh, you know to express you know any opinion, scientific opinion. Uh, I, I think that um, the um, you know I, I'm sure MIT has diverse opinions. Um, I'm very open always to debate with anybody that I mean I wish we could have debates on the issues. I think it's going to be very very important to do so. To do so. Uh, but so far, I've not uh, had any uh, negative impact from MIT. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, I'm, I mean, I have a lot of dear colleagues at MIT. I've been working with them also on COVID-19 uh, protocol, bringing bringing in students. Like, uh, so I think um, there is mutual respect, and even if we don't agree, like we still do that out of respect. Is there a lot of, um, I mean, it doesn't need to be in your faculty, but you know of a lot of people who are maybe unvaccinated at MIT? So at MIT, I think uh, the community uh, is highly vaccinated, partially because, like many other universities, MIT required both students and staff to be vaccinated. Um, and, you know. mm -hmm. So I, I think, but, but I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't have statistics beyond the third booster. I think the third booster is probably 90%. If I'm not mistaken, but like, uh, but like, uh, I, 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 get, I have to guess. It's about, it's around ninety percent. I don't know the exact numbers. I don't know anything about the uh, um, vaccination rates beyond the, the third booster. Okay. And another question from the audience in Israel: What's the? Um, do you notice that there's more voices speaking out against the agenda, and um, is that coming from certain groups, maybe religious groups or other groups? Do you see anything there? I, I think I think actually Israel, uh, to be honest, um, is not a very easy place for uh, people with uh, opinions against the narrative. Uh, I, I think that there are two reasons for that. Uh, a, I, I think, unlike maybe the U.S where there's some divide, political divide around COVID, uh, and that also translates to the media, the division of the media, right? 
in, in Israel, the two political sides actually followed the same policy on COVID and there were two governments, one from the right, uh, right uh, and one from the left center that followed the same policies and, and sort of promoted vaccines with a green, green passport. So essentially no politician has an interest to actually revisit these decisions. Um, and, and, and accordingly, the, the media is, the mainstream media is very, very suppressing of any, an attempt to actually uh, voice uh, things. But I, but I think, as I mentioned, I think that many people in, by their feet kind of show that they know that something is wrong with the vaccine. Many of them, I think, also maybe are not aware fully that this is, that was the vaccine or just want to kind of put it behind them and just move on. Uh, but I think that there's slowly, slowly more and more awareness that things are are, are not right. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's going to be a wishful thinking to think that this is behind us. I think that, uh, to me, what, what is concerning, uh, a, you know, how do we regain trust in science and medicine? Because I do believe in science and medicine as a, as a major vehicle to actually improve people's life. And I think that what happened over the last uh, three years is, is essentially, I always tell people, I, I feel I'm mainstream. The people that deviated are the people that I'm the mainstream up to three years ago. The people that deviated are all the people that went in on these extreme policies that are not scientifically based. Uh, so I, I hope we can get back to open science debate, scientific debate that actually gain trust from people, uh, because I, I, I think it's going to be detrimental if we actually lose faith in science and medicine. Um, but that's kind of a long, a long journey to, to regain that. Uh, and the second thing that I think uh, is concerning is that I don't think uh, emergencies, uh, health emer health related emergencies are, are gone. And on the horizon, I can sort of see other health emergencies that uh, could yes. be used, could, could there be are used two to actually drive two cases of policies. Virus. What? You know, you, have you heard there are two cases of Marburg virus now in Africa? Yeah. Who knows? It could the be, it could be uh, climate related. It could be. It could be. <laughs> Uh, it could yeah. be, you know, he, he now we just had in Israel like an emergency case on polio. Like I, I think, I think that uh, again, I, 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 I think we need to make sure that we go back to mainstream science-based medicine and science that puts puts evidence forward, scrutinize the evidence, and make decisions based on uh, first do make no harm, don't take extreme decisions. Uh, and really believe at the end that what, what the job of science and, and health authorities is to present to individuals the data the best way they can in a transparent way and let them make decisions about their health and their life. Uh, because that's what I think democracy is about. And one last question from the audience. Why do you think that's not really working right now? Like the, um, you know, sort of the, the, um, the scientific knowledge and the political um, decision-making well, seems I, I to be like that, a yeah. giant gap. I, I think that there are some systematic issues that we have to address that uh, both regulatory organizations as well as uh, science is uh, too much intermingled with industry interests and commercial interests. And, and I think that that's kind of corrupted um, a lot of uh, the processes and the open uh, debate that we have, uh, and you know, more and more data now come in the U.S. on how tech companies were engaged actively with the government on uh, suppressing opinions, suppressing uh, uh, debate. How the concept of misinformation was completely abused uh, to essentially uh, disqualify information and data and science 
um, so I, I think we have a lot of work to do. And, and again, these digital technologies and the tech and all, you know, all, the, all the notion of how information is being considered and distributed and, and become free to people uh, and sciences within that is, is, is a big, big societal challenge that we need to attack ethically. We need to attack it uh, you know, through legislation and, and really be kind of active, both the scientists and citizens, to make sure that uh, you know, technologies like digital technologies, medical technologies uh, are being used to improve the individual and the human well-being and not like uh, serve uh, commercial interests uh, that do not put human well-being at the center. And I think that that's kind of, to me, as a scientist, this is going to be something I'm going to try to contribute to going forward. Um, maybe to, to, to at the end of my life and career, because I think that that's maybe the most fundamental issue to secure democracies going forward. Yeah, well, so I think it's very important work that you do to shine a light on all these biases, because that's not easy, easily understood by a lot of people. I think we really, really have to look uh, careful at the sort of the, the scientific base of a study, because otherwise we are being like duped, duped into believing that it's some, uh, telling us something completely different than it is, than it really is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's uh, that's really important. Yeah. Thanks so much okay. for. It was a pleasure. A pleasure interacting. I hope people found it uh, useful, and I. Uh... Wish everybody a great weekend. Thanks so much. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Yeah, jetzt war das, haben wir hier gesprochen mit Professor Dr. Recep Levy über die. That was Professor Dr. Recep Levy. And. And he looked at the non-balanced basis of studies or the wrong starting positions in the analysis of data and. Uh, when you look at that, uh, this shines a completely different light on these studies. If we uh, checked the birth rates, for example, there we saw that people were starting off uh, assuming wrong numbers. And if you pick out certain statistical details to then present a completely different finding than what there was. And now we continue in German. We have now um, Chris Moser with us. Oh, there he is. Well, hello. Uh, very good. Um, you are specialized in tax course proceeding criminal law, and uh, you're also founding member and treasurer of the Lawyers for Enlightenment until May 22. And you write articles and columns for the Epoch Times. Topics are society, culture, and philosophy. And now you're actually very close to a specific case, which uh, raises a great deal of questions. Maybe I'll just give you the floor and you tell us what this is about. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I work for Epoch Times at the uh, district court of uh, Bochum because there is a case against a, a physician um, from Reckinghausen, that's uh, Dr. Habeck, um, he and his wife, who was his um, assistant, are accused now of uh, issuing um, vaccination certificates uh, to patients without actually vaccinating them. The whole thing was triggered by uh, his uh, being denounced by another physician 
who came forward to the public prosecutor um, denouncing him because uh, she heard by um, rumor, um, by hearsay, that he um, did this sort of thing and she didn't um, agree with this practice. So um, a um, criminal investigator went to his um, a practice to verify whether it was true or not, um, but um, he could not determine this, um, and so was a search in January um, 23, and during this search, which was during the opening hours with patients in, uh, in presence, um, uh, some things, particularly uh, patient files, were seized. Uh, the number of cases that or documents that were seized there um, is not fully known to me. Um, the talk, there's talk of four to six thousand cases, and it's not quite clear um, how many of these cases uh, reflect booster vaccination. So I can't tell how many um, patients are affected. So it's probably a three-digit figure, a uh, four-digit figure, so 2,000 cases or so, patients or so. So uh, there must have been a lot, lot of demand uh, there. Um, but this is not no surprise uh, considering the times we had there. Um, maybe uh, my background is a bit, uh, bit interesting. Just after this denouncement, the um, attorney of this physician contacted the uh, public prosecutor indicating that another uh, cabinet had not been um, is, um, examined uh, because and uh, that they should do that because there were uh, vaccination doses there. That's interesting, and we'll get back to that later on. Then, in uh, the middle of 22, uh, the physician was arrested, was apprehended, claiming that uh, there was um, a risk of his uh, absconding. Um, the claim was. Um, made because his wife is a Moroccan citizen, so she wasn't arrested though, but he was, which isn't so logical, doesn't seem to be that logical, but for 10 months he has been um, been in um, custody, in uh, remand, um, and a decision has been passed by a court that the uh, uh, remand decision will be um, upheld, and uh, but they didn't even say that uh, there was still a um, any risk of absconding, but that the um, process will just draw out. And they added another reason for um, the arrest because while he was in remand, the uh, visits um, of his wife to him uh, were always um, supervised by a representative of the public uh, prosecutor, which is unusual. Normally, it should should simply be a staff member of the uh, penitentiary. But um, the public prosecutor's uh, office always ensured that uh, they wouldn't speak about the case, and uh, she also the, the the representative of the public public prosecutor. Uh, also um, witnessed in court that um, there was uh, talk of a trip to Zanzibar and that was another reason why the remand was upheld um, and uh, it was also said that uh, when um, the um, 
uh, when the physician asked his lawyer whether he could, uh, whether his wife could go to um, uh, on holidays, uh, the lawyer confirmed this, and that was one of the reasons why they extended the remand. So in December, um, the court case uh, started, and um, there was a first hearing between the court, uh, the uh, public prosecutor, and the uh, public defender, the Sang Council, where they um, spoke about a um, out of court settle out of court settlement, and this uh, settlement was then um, publicly discussed, and it was indicated that in the event of his um, um, confessing, he uh, would be. Uh, condemned to three years, three and a half years, uh, and she would be uh, sentenced to a um, imprisonment of one year if there is a confession. In uh, the course of further hearings, um, he actually, they both confessed, and uh, his uh, confession was very emotional, it has to be said. Um, the, uh, his um, uh, uh, I, as his uh, defense uh, lawyer, read out his statement, and he also read out a statement that he prepared in prison, uh, but he had to interrupt his statement because he uh, started crying over and over again. He started his statement by saying that he um, is uh, rueful, that he is repenting um, having issued um, vaccine um, certificates without uh, vaccinating them. And he said he had, uh, um, he had violated his um, uh, oath, um, his uh, physician's oath and his ethics uh, to maintain his patient's respect. I have to say that I doubt whether uh, this were, these were his own words, or whether the uh, public prosecutor suggested that in order to uh, achieve a, um, uh, a settlement. And uh, then he um, explained, and that didn't seem to be too logical, he uh, explained his uh, patients' uh, statements who, um, he said, kept crying uninhibitedly. So it started, um, uh, he always had a good reputation because he always offered alternative meds, uh, medical treatments in the, in the past, um, even though he was a um, um, allopathic uh, med, uh, uh, physician. So his patients had sufficient trust in him that they wanted uh, to be vaccinated by him um, or if they uh, were to avoid vaccination that they um, um, that they could get a certificate. So he offered that, as he said in his confession, that he actually offered um, issuing uh, certificates that did not um, um, reflect an actual vaccination. And he gave an explanation of um, his uh, patient's needs. Um, one case was that uh, mother was not able to uh, visit her own newborn child. Once she left hospital, she couldn't go back in without a vaccination certificate. That was actually what some hospitals did, believe it or not. And I also remember the case of a mother uh, that he mentioned who asked him to 
issue a vaccination certificate for his 18-year-old um, son whose friend had passed after uh, a day after the vaccination. You can imagine how um, desperate she was. Um, there were pregnant women who didn't want to get the uh, vaccine. Um, we heard about that in the previous presentation. Then there was professional pressure on a lot of people. Um, the um, mandate, the vaccination mandate in certain um, professional groups, but also sometimes um, even outside these groups, uh, there were some employers who exerted that uh, pressure. Then uh, people who had uh, family who were ill, who they needed to take care of. Those. So there were all, uh, a wide gamut of needs of, of, of um, situations of plight um, that uh, people presented. His wife also uh, confessed that she knew um, what he was doing, that she helped him in doing that. And one more thing, uh, it was discussed then between uh, the court, the uh, public prosecutor and the defense, from when um, one could expect that there were no actual vaccines uh, being administered anymore. It went back and forth a bit, and then the uh, assigned council accepted that beginning mid-September 2021, no actual vaccinations were administered anymore. And I have to and uh, give you my own um, uh, opinion. I am a um, um, oftentimes an, an, an assigned counsel as well. And um, why do you get so deeply involved? Uh, you could simply have leant back and said, I don't remember, prove it to me. And then the court or the public prosecutor would have had to prove this. Nevertheless, that was not the case. So uh, the assigned counsel said that beginning mid September on, there was no actual. Uh, vaccination anymore and that would have meant really that um, I have to say would have had uh, the chance um, the story goes on um, of, of um, convicting the um, the physician from after uh, September and then the first witness was heard and he said no I was vaccinated after September 2021 and then Dr. Habe uh, indicated that yes there were still vaccinations after that point uh, but he couldn't um, remember how many they were. He couldn't reconstruct it anymore. That's understandable. And then the court uh, distanced itself from the settlements um, agreed on because there was no basis for this agreement anymore. Um, and so there was the big rupture here, also loss of trust in uh, the assigned council. And um, then uh, a new defense lawyer um, intervened, um, Dr. Wilfried Schmitz, who um, uh, worked for Dr. Habig, and um, uh, another one for um, his wife. So, uh, colleague Schmitz uh, actually um, um, submitted a, a complaint against um, Dr. Lauterbach. And so now uh, the winds have changed because the defense uh, compared to the um, assigned council who tried to find a settlement is uh, trying to offensively uh, defend the um, um, uh, the plaintiffs, uh, the um, uh, defendants um, by um, verifying the um, credibility of all witnesses and then also determining 
whether uh, what about this vaccine was it um, effective efficacious was it um, uh, harmless and was that maybe an act of um, emergency help and um, the agreement envisaged in um, um, a sentence of three to three and a half years imprisonment, and that is only a possible if uh, incorrect health certificates are issued. Um, that is the um, only uh, reason they can base themselves, and the, this is qualified if it is a commercial act. In other words, the precondition is that he ensured um, a source of income, a significant source of income that way. But in the practice, um, they found a um, shoe carton where people could give a bit of money. And according to witness statements, um, they were invited or allowed to do that, but didn't have to do that. And um, they uh, seem to have found that uh, about 12,000 euro were paid into that shoebox. But if we consider that we're talking of four to 6,000 cases, it means I didn't uh, calculate it, it's just a few euro, 20 euro or whatever, per patient on average, of course, because not everybody made a contribution that uh, must have been uh, very uh, diverse and voluntary, definitely voluntary. So we have to um, uh, assume very small volumes, particularly because his normal um, activities basically uh, stalled because so many people visited him. So uh, commercial interest, no. But if there's no qualification for um, the, the crime, then we have a, a sentence of no more than two years. So I wonder how can you uh, come up with a settlement like that? That is something that the uh, assigned council should have um, come up with. All right, all of these are reasons that basically led to the diminishment of the trust between Dr. Habich and his lawyer. But then the lawyers provided by the court were still there. Uh, they have not been demoted, even though it had been an escrow, um, because uh, at the end of the day, uh, they will have to remain in the proceedings. I don't understand the reason why. I don't understand what caused them to do that. And the missing trust. These are all reasons that, that I think would mean that they have to be removed. And then there are a couple of things uh, that we're still thinking about. Um, let's talk about uh, providing emergency aid for those who are not uh, lawyers. It means that if somebody is in dire need, uh, and then that person uh, will then, uh, uh, for some reason, uh, goes in to help another person to provide uh, uh, support. They, they, they were um, in a situation where they needed help, that's pretty obvious. And from what I understand, you can see the fact that uh, they were construing 
particular situations of pressure and uh, meaning that uh, the pressure being that the vaccination was to be carried out, um, which led to a purpose uh, which was against uh, you know what they were aimed for we we knew of course that now and we just heard it that these vaccinations didn't uh, not only have no effect in other words that they were um, helping to protect uh, the, the persons but on the contrary that uh, it may even cause them to have a negative effect so if you have that kind of pressure and that pressure is being induced by the uh, vaccination campaign you may assume that the government um, you know, passed on to the employers and so on uh, this kind of coercion is happening and that coercion of course is against the law and then as a doctor you are allowed to provide emergency help and there are a couple of other aspects that you need to keep in mind uh, this is something that also came up uh, during the trial that the instruction leaflets were completely held in white i mean they didn't contain any information so any talk about uh, side effects i'm not even talking about the main effect so the doctor was not in a position to provide any information so because of that, he should not uh, be able to vaccinate at all. I mean, in fact, that means he cannot vaccinate because as a physician, he must be able to talk about the effect and the side effects. And if um, the patient then agrees not to be vaccinated, then uh, in that case, uh, uh, you know, we are talking about bodily harm and uh, nobody is allowed to uh, uh, exert bodily harm and least of all doctors of course and it is very clear that a doctor uh, is not supposed to follow the instructions of uh, the lawmakers but what his uh, scientific and uh, medical knowledge tells him so in this case the doctor was sticking to these provisions and that, of course, uh, leads to the question of the act on uh, genetic engineering. And so, first of all, the fact that uh, uh, he supposedly provided these falsified um, certificates. And then there is another act uh, that is um, the falsified certificate of a COVID-19 vaccination. That is a regulation that uh, is unlawful because this is a genetic, um, a genetic insertion. It's a, a genetic treatment and a genetic treatment should be seen by the act on genetic engineering. And the Genetic Engineering Act, in fact, provides this kind of protection. Now, if the lawmaker says that, uh, then tries to uh, go past the provisions of the Genetic Engineering Act, then that is something that is not acceptable because the doctor has to uh, stick to the regulations that um, 
make sure that he protects the patient uh, because he's not supposed to do any bodily harm, of course, as a doctor, even less than that. And I would assume that, you know, you cannot uh, call it uh, part of the administrative law. You uh, cannot say that, uh, simply say, no, I'm a, I'm a private uh, person now. This has nothing to do with the administrative law. Uh, and and the same principle applies here. He, as a doctor, has to, of course, observe the regulations of the Act on Genetic Engineering. Those are the most important aspects of this procedure that we saw. But what is important here is that the court obviously was biased, at least uh, the leading judge. That's why we uh, had a number uh, of uh, repealed and they said that uh, the new lawyers did not get the minutes of the previous ones and then uh, they took, deci took decisions from the 1980s, a time before computers. Um, this is not about if you want to or don't want to, but the question is, do you have to or can you and should you? Uh, because um, the lawyers could not provide their uh, job, uh, but uh, sure. Uh, I don't want to give you too many um, details here, but um, it is pretty obvious that the, the judges were absolutely biased. And uh, the judge also looked extremely nervous. That was one thing I noticed. Uh, and now if uh, the lawyers uh, take another tack, I mean, they, of course, get a little bit rattled. Oh, that's an incredible procedure. And the fact that you're not allowed to look at the files at the previous minutes uh, of the proceeding that's a fundamental source of information for the defense of course and um, this is un unbelievable the things that happened there absolutely you're so right <clears throat> i am shocked uh, uh, and that's another aspect uh, uh, supposedly the trial is public it has to be but uh, can you really speak of a public trial? Because you notice then, of course, in the courthouse there, uh, as everywhere else, there are checks if you want to get in. And even just outside the courtroom, they ask to show the identity card. And in the first um, trial dates, they took pictures of the ID cards, and that, of course, is against the law, because uh, somehow then people did not want to actually go and um, attend the court session because they didn't want their uh, ID cards to be photographed. And I think it's pretty obvious that the judges were completely biased. May I jump in? I, I, I try to understand that, and I try to understand what the situation of the doctor is. A doctor who now sees that these injections, uh, which uh, people are forced to accept, that they actually cause damage. He knows that the approval was unlawful. He knows that the labels are wrong. He knows that there is a genetic engineering involved that is not a regular vaccination. He knows that all of the analysis of risk have not been carried out. So he has all of that knowledge. 
doctor who then says, my patients are not supposed to take, um, have, have any harm. And at the same time, you know, we need these doctors. We need the doctors in the hospital. We need the nurses in the hospitals. We need them all over the place. So I hope that in three, four years, they can then, you know, do a second part of Schindler's List. Because it is so terrible what we're watching here. And it is so understandable that uh, this doctor was, of course, in dire times trying to decide because he's helpless and then his patients are begging him. And then the doctor may say, okay, it's a crime, but uh, I don't care. No, that cannot be done like that. And uh, the, the doctors who then asked, um, you know, the staff at the hospital not to continue working, they were the heroes because they then um, simply told them and said, no, they're sick. And only then they didn't have to be vaccinated. Not, I mean, that was only the only way to circumvent that criminal situation. And I think there is a lot of very good behavior by these people who were exposed to this risk, but then formally, legally, these were in fact infractions, but these infractions are understandable and the higher good, of course, is the health of the patients. <clears throat> and therefore, I think it was completely justifiable. And I think that this trial should be fought all the way to the very end. I'm so happy that there are lawyers who are talking about it and who will fight it all the way. Thank you very much to all of those who want to shed light on it. And if I may repeat that, really, really, you guys, judges, how are you going to live with yourselves afterwards when all of this comes out to light? Yes, indeed. If I may respond here, thanks for the buzzword, Schindler's List, because there was actually a, a case um, when uh, the first uh, defense lawyer visited Dr. Habich uh, and his uh, wife was there as well, uh, Dr. Habich said that some of the visitors uh, saw him as a new Oscar Schindler and that they see parallels. And uh, the uh, representative of the public prosecutor said uh, in uh, the court that he called himself Oscar Schindler, saying that he is um, uh, raising himself above um, normal people. Um, probably that is uh, to um, make the courts um, even more disinclined to um, uh, pass a low, uh, small sentence. But it's the um, exact opposite. Um, it can be uh, emergency assistance, which he provides to uh, help the patients overcome their plight. And it's so obvious here. And I'm so grateful um, uh, that the new defense lawyers now do all that they can, uh, that they have such an active approach. Um, they, um, they have already made so many uh, submissions um, we'll see um, whether the um, the court will sustain those submissions. For instance, listening, um, hearing um, um, professors as witnesses. All of this is being um, mentioned. 
And this is probably why uh, the court is so aggressive, really. Now, if we compare this now, the physicians who provided this emergency help by issuing sick certs, that probably hasn't been uh, checked so often uh, because this uh, can be done by telephone today. This has been done by the federal government to facilitate this. And of course, this has been done there as well. And that, again, is a type of emergency help, which is not so obvious. But the difference between these two types of emergency uh, help, Dr. Habich, ensured uh, that people uh, kept working. Um, yeah, that's true. Exactly. And they were needed. So these people, like, for instance, health workers, they kept working. They kept helping, supporting uh, people in this stressful situation. And uh, the other emergency uh, aids helps uh, to stop um, uh, hospitals from being um, emptied of staff and now the university clinic in cologne says we can't help people for lack of staff well we have a question from the audience uh, and it has been said the judge is uh, getting nervous um she's probably caught in a narrative is she under pressure what do you believe what's your impression that the um, um uh, judgment the sentence is passed accordingly does she empathize with the patient's um, plight I can only give you my personal impression. I can't see inside her head. Um, but it's quite obvious, really. Um, whenever the defense is uh, walking, she never looks at them. She looks outside the window or looks at the public prosecutor. Then she looks back. But as soon as she says something, normal behavior would be to look at people. And she just she won't. And she shifts in her seat. Those are things you need very little uh, psychological knowledge to realize that she's not happy at all in her skin. And in all the process, she is so reckless, uh, I must say. Uh, there was one situation, for instance, where a witness was heard, and the uh, witness uh, broke down in tears and couldn't answer anymore, and uh, the defense was requested a, an interruption of the um, uh, hearing, which the judge rejected, uh, and the um, hearing um, had to be uh, continued. And I've mentioned already that there have been uh, several um, um, biased petitions, and they were only um, heard at the end of each uh, hearing um, and then the next uh, meetings the next hearings were held as well so there was never an interruption uh, for the defense to um, start um, uh, reviewing the files etc um, so uh, the process was continued even though this is illegal only um, anything that cannot be postponed um, must be uh, maybe done uh, but uh, the next hearings have been uh, set until uh, into March. Now it's uh, continued until May. It probably will uh, go all the way down into the fall. And they just keep uh, pursuing this. My impression is that the court makes no uh, effort to um, 
stop these, uh, to, to, to look at the things that are being presented here. Uh, what I don't understand, well, I understand because I see um, uh, what, uh, where the court is coming from. What doesn't make sense is why are so many witnesses heard? Process economy would uh, require that. The question is analyzed first. What were the motives of the um, physician, for instance, the idea of emergency help? Um, all these things that might actually um, justify the, the um, defendant. And if that was the case, then you don't need to hear any witnesses anymore. That would be superfluous then. Then not only the process could be sped up, but all these um, public hearing of these witnesses um, would be um, avoidable. Uh, they don't want this, I believe. Uh, they want to intimidate all the witnesses for half a year, uh, three quarters of a, a year. They're all brought to a, a court and they, they have to make an official, an, a public kowtow, basically. I don't want to uh, use this word, uh, overuse this word, but this is really um, um, a case of a um, uh, show trial um, that is made to intimidate all the physicians, but I hope that this backfires because the uh, uh, court uh, seems to believe that they can um, um, condemn someone, but if all the illegal things that uh, the government has um, done come to light and all the suffering of uh, the patients, particularly the vaccine victims come to light, then this is, of course, uh, something that might uh, be contrary to what was intended. And then let me say something else uh, that uh, comes to mind in the context of what Mr. Bodak said. Um, it says in the documentation um, on the um, court case that the patients were vaccine critics and such who were afraid of the vaccine. I find that quite interesting. So there are vaccine critics and those who are afraid of the vaccine. So vaccine critics aren't afraid of the vaccine. They're just um, no gooders. Um, that's interesting how the public prosecutor um, thinks. So the public prosecution uh, asks every witness um, where there uh, was their literature critical of vaccinations available there. Uh, that is really in favor of, um, of the defense because it means that the physician uh, actually um, was looking into the vaccine, but the um, um, public prosecutor thinks that it's obviously a troublemaker here that they're dealing with. So the public prosecutor uh, doesn't have the um, the notion that a um, vaccine critic might be a vaccine critic because he's afraid of the uh, vaccine. That's interesting. Well, it seems to be a case that's really riddled with very curious, very strange um, aspects. And if we look at uh, um, the uh, case from Austria, um, where uh, somebody uh, issued um, vaccine um, uh, exemption certificates um, um, and was exonerated. Now, uh, this is quite similar. Well, the interesting thing is that um, the public prosecution never even showed up. They let it go rather than try to defend this uh, or to argue their case. So maybe this happens still uh, is coming down the line here as well. They, oh, oh, well, let's see. Let's just let it go. Let's see how we get how they get out of this. What I find interesting in the same court, 
different chamber. There was a, a case, a member of the Basis party who was also accused of issuing unjustified um, uh, health certificates in numerous cases as well. No, it wasn't in the context of vaccines, but he was exonerated. That was uh, went differently and was obvious that the court and uh, the, the presiding judge had a uh, very economical view of the uh, process and the results. I looked, uh, I, I monitored this um, case. They did uh, listen to a number of witnesses and I was wondering why is that necessary now. But after the first few, it was obvious where um, the whole thing was headed and they could have uh, done without it and I was uh, feeling quite well in that case but it did um, come to light that uh, the process wasn't drawn out unnecessarily and that um, there was an exoneration. Of course the public prosecutor appealed against the um, ruling and um, I represented two patients in this case as well so I had a personal insight in this as well. But it, um, they were also accused and uh, they were also exonerated. That was the same court, the District Court of Bochum. So the question uh, arises, where is this pressure coming from? Is that institutional pressure? Why did it apply in one chamber and not in the other, or more or less in uh, one or the other chamber? Or is it really the um, personal motivation of protagonists uh, on the side of the public prosecution or the court? It's difficult to see that from the outsider's view. Well, now that you mentioned the masks, uh, there was a very nice review uh, in the British, British uh, Medical Journal, which um, uh, clearly proves the damage caused in, uh, by CO2, uh, CO2 the um, irreversible nerve changes in children um, is proven there. If the CO2 level is uh, raised for only two hours, twofold or threefold, but behind the mask when it's uh, worn for a long time, it's much higher. So the children were um, have been proven to be to have been damaged in large numbers, and a physician who prevented that from happening did the best they could do for their patients. And a court that condemns this that's really unbelievable. According to all um, medical knowledge we have. The mask mandate for children was a crime and the millions of children who have been damaged, they actually would um, be, uh, would have to be entitled uh, to compensation because this cannot be undone, this damage. So if you want to go after physicians because they stopped children from being damaged, well, you really have to be sick to your head if you do that. I don't know. What's, what's happening there. This is something that is really absolutely impossible to understand. If you know what happened there and what the uh, impact is, just because some minister, um, a government minister said something just because they don't have a, the slightest clue of what's going on, it's unbelievable. Well, I hear that many with the public prosecutor and in the um, uh, courts uh, don't want to uh, don't want to understand what the medical knowledge is and that is a um, societal problem many people believe what they say on the mainstream news and then uh, there's this uh, criticism of the system that I can see uh, the public prosecutors offices and the courts are attached to the Ministry of Justice 
and the Ministry of Justice is part of the government, is is cabinet, is a cabinet portfolio. So we don't have an independent uh, judicial system um, that is actually capable of uh, being an independent branch of government of of um, uh, an independent power in the state, um, holding the government uh, liable. Well, the understanding that courts are free. If a, a judge is paid by the government and whose uh, and whose boss is uh, the Minister of Justice, will actually attack the government um, if the government has this uh, narrative. Is uh, if the government is hellbent on uh, pushing through some agenda, which judge will against it? We had this case in Weimar where an example was made of some judges, and that is some a problem we not only uh, that we have not only in Germany but in probably in most states that should be reconsidered whether it wouldn't make sense to organize the judiciary in a different way yeah that's exactly what happened in Turkey with Erdogan he simply fired the judges the media in Germany was harping on that what kind of civil of justice is that and they were really excited all about it. and who, where, where are they now where are they now well, it's obvious that we don't have a free um, public mainstream uh, press. We uh, we know that by now, and that was also mentioned by the um, defense in the context of the Ukraine story. I don't remember what it, uh, where it came from, but there was an interesting publication that the defense quoted there how the government and the um, public media are intertwined. Deutsche Welle was mentioned there, um, the public um, uh, news stations. That's really called um, propaganda. Yeah, that's called uh, embedded journalism now. Yeah, we, we know that from, from American um, military um, uh, reporting, yes. Yeah, very interesting case indeed. So when is the next uh, trial date? I don't know by heart, I'm sorry, um, but we can... Uh, thanks for pointing it out to me. Uh, I'm uh, continuously reporting about it via my uh, Telegram um, channel. Um, um, and all my news is posted there and I can, um, I'll be happy to post when the next um, court case, um, or court uh, dates are. And of course, um, we of course try to uh, collect donations um, by all the supporters um, of the physician, also by the White Crane, as it is an organization in Germany uh, that supports the physician. If you want to uh, donate, you're happy to do that as well. Well, great, interesting. I hope this is going to turn out to be good and that uh, finally the tides will turn. And now that Mr. Schmitz is involved, that uh, things may turn out to be better in the sense of a real defense. It's shocking that they had the lawyer provided by the court who didn't do anything for the um, person there. How can he still be held on board? That is a very, very unusual procedure never seen that before and he could just uh, again uh, simply plead the opposite of what uh, mr schmidt says already yes worst case scenario of course um, other scenarios are uh, conceivable I, I i don't want to claim anything uh, it's a theory 
but um, um, there have been quite um, uh, striking inconsistencies, such as I mentioned. It might be uh, something that might be feared, of course, but those are considerations. And just the loss of, of uh, trust um, is enough not to uh, allow a council to speak. Well, he's from Dortmund. All right. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for that information. And I think we will stay in touch and you will keep us posted. And hopefully by the summertime, we'll have a positive development that we can report on. That would be great. Well, I hope so. Very much so. Um, it remains interesting. I uh, called my article in Epoch Times a uh, crime story in court um, um, because it's not only a crime story that they're dealing with, but also a crime story happening in court. It's like a, um, a court uh, movie, um, really a big one. Um, it's a very sad um, uh, story, but it, it stays interesting, of course. A developing story, sure. But then again, there are people who are affected. I mean, the guy, he was working on behalf of the people, and now, you know, he's in jail on remand. And to be in jail, I mean, there's not something you do just like that. I mean, this is really an incredible change and very traumatizing for anybody to be in jail. Horrible, horrible story. And uh, I hope that uh, eventually they are going to find a solution for that and uh, the knot will be untied. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for your presentation and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Anytime. I'll be happy to. Thanks. Yeah, that was Chris Moser, a lawyer who told us uh, about the proceedings against the doctor, Mr. Habich, who has been in custody for. Uh, supposedly issuing false vaccination certificates and did not want to uh, vaccinate people uh, here. A, a recurring guest, it is Dr. Uh, sorry, not Dr., but it's Scott Ritter. We have had him in our session uh, 98 on the uh, on April 1st of um, well 2022. Um, hello, can you hear us? I can hear you. Thank you very much for inviting me back, and I appreciate the promotion to doctor. I haven't yet earned it, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> maybe it's going to happen. But I guess maybe it was it like in 2022. I'm not quite sure. Uh, time just, uh, you know, flies by. So, okay. So you are a former United States Marine Corps intelligence officer for 12 years. You've been, uh, you had that, were that, and uh, your former United Nations Special Commissions um, Weapons Inspector for the uh, UNSCOM from uh, 91 uh, through 98. You're also an author and pundit, and you worked as a security and military consultant for the Fox News Network. Is there anything you would like to add to that um, uh, short presentation of your credentials? No, that that uh, that about sums it up. Okay, perfect. So then the floor is yours um, with regards what you to what you want to tell us today. Well, I think I was initially brought on to talk about the situation in Ukraine and what's uh, happening there. But um, I think uh, there's been a, a recent breaking story that um, <clears throat> is related, and that is, of course, the uh, the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines. Um, 
Now, the attack took place in September of last year, mm -hmm. um, and it's been a source of um, frustration, I think, amongst uh, most observers, I would imagine, um, especially in Germany, since it was pipelines that were transferring gas and capable of transferring gas that is uh, essential for the functioning of the German economy. Um, and which had been caught up in a, a political um, a disagreement between the United States and Germany over um, the role this gas played in terms of leveraging Russian control over, uh, you know, potential control over German policies. Uh, President Biden um, infamously promised to destroy these pipelines uh, if Russian tanks crossed into uh, Ukraine. And um, indeed, after Russian tanks crossed into Ukraine, uh, the pipelines were destroyed. But the United States denies any involvement in this, and uh, Germany doesn't seem to be too keen on carrying out a um, an investigation until recently. You see um, Seymour Hersh, the uh, world-famous investigative reporter, um, published an article in on his Substack uh, page, um, which cites an unnamed source uh, or sources, knowing that Se knowing Seymour Hersh as well as I do, uh, he disguises his sources quite well uh, to protect them. Uh, because in this case, if somebody is talking to him, they are violating numerous uh, uh, laws in terms of the protection of classified information. But you know, Seymour Hersh's article is full of the kind of details that uh, have marked his past reporting, details that can only come from a, from an insider uh, with uh, with intimate knowledge and details that are condemning in terms of what they say about the involvement of the United States in the planning and execution of what was an act of war against Germany, what was an act of terrorism against Germany, and if carried out by the United States, represents one of the greatest betrayals of one ally to another in the history of of modern times. Um, his reporting was largely ignored, um, which is interesting because he's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist, uh, uh, numerous Polk Awards uh, with a history of breaking, um, you know, earth shattering stories. So it's not as though he's some sort of um, journalistic student coming straight out of college uh, trying to, uh, you know, spread conspiracies. This is an 85 year old man with a uh, track record of getting it right uh, when the government doesn't want him to get it right. Um, but his story was largely ignored, uh, denied, etc. And then suddenly we have a, an interesting breaking story from the New York Times, and then uh, German media has picked up on it, about um, an investigation carried out by German law enforcement officials about a boat <laughs> that uh, sailed from Rostock, a, a German port, uh, on September 6th and uh, was crewed by a mysterious group of uh, four men and a woman uh, carrying falsified passports. It'd be interesting to understand more about those passports. Um, and uh, they sailed out into the Baltic and they returned. Um, and their boat was uh, dirty, apparently. And uh, this unclean aspect of this boat um, triggered a German law enforcement investigation in January that uncovered traces of explosives on the boat. Now, that's an interesting detail, traces of explosives. Why? 
because the Swedish government has acknowledged that it has recovered traces of explosives from the scene of the attack uh, that suggested that this was uh, human, an act of human sabotage. Um, Seymour Hersh's reporting makes it clear that these explosives would have had to have been chemically altered to function um, in the waters of the Baltic. Uh, that is to have been uh, adapted to the salinity of the water. Um, and the other thing is uh, explosive residue that takes place that is collected after an explosion is chemically different than explosive residue that's, cap that's uh, you know, captured from explosive that's simply on a boat. But you could link the two. So I'm interested if the Germans have contacted the Swedes and asked for the chemical composition of the residue detected from the bottom of the ocean. And if there's been linkage made, it seems to me this is a critical aspect of the investigation, but they're silent about it. Um, you know, this is the, the smoking gun, so to speak, of, uh, of chemistry. Um, this is the kind of work I used to do. I'm not a chemist, but I'm the kind of guy that would collect the information and turn it over to the chemists who would then run the samples through a, uh, a, a lab and come back with results that would either link or delink. Um, but there's silence on this. Um, and you have to ask yourself why, because this could be the smoking gun. This could be uh, that which shows that this was carried out, et cetera. Or what it could be is evidence that will fall apart under close examination, exposing the New York Times and German stories as a crude cover-up. Uh, trying to deflect attention away from Seymour Hersh's reporting, an effort by the German intelligence services to create a cover story that protects their American allies, but protects them from what? Being found out as the nation that stabbed Germany in the back. This is a huge story. This is uh, a story that has profound implications for the United States because it represents uh, one of the most the, the most gross breach violation of the Constitution in modern times. Um, Joe Biden, if Seymour Hersh's reporting is true, conspired with his staff to bypass constitutionally mandated reporting requirements to Congress before carrying out an act of war, but not an act of war against an enemy, an act of war against an ally, a friend. <laughs> Apparently, we're not allies with Germany. And we're not friends with Germany because allies and friends don't blow up billion-dollar critical infrastructure that condemns Germany's economy to a perpetual slide downhill. Yet another smelter closed down in Germany. Uh, Germany's economy is in a, a tatters. Uh, companies are shutting down, moving where? To the United States. <laughs> um, the price of energy has gone up three, four, five times because you can't buy cheap Russian gas anymore. You have to buy expensive American liquid natural gas. This is not the action of a friend. This is the action of an enemy. And this is why uh, so much effort is being put into shielding the United States from the hard facts that exist about this, uh, this terrorist event that, uh, that took place. But it's also important for Germany. Um, what did Olaf Scholz know? And when did he know it? Uh, one only has to take a look at his face when he was in the White House on February 7th of last year, at the time when President Biden announced that he was going to destroy the Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, it was a look of terror, a look of fear, 
but it was also a look of knowledge, meaning he knew that this was going to happen. Um, and yet here he is today protecting his uh, American sponsors um, and lying to the German people. Um, there are some members of parliament who are starting to ask the difficult questions. And apparently the German media is at least starting to pick up on uh, the need to investigate this story. And what happens if this gains traction? What are the consequences for Germany? Let's say Seymour Hersh's story turns out to be true. What does that mean for Germany? Can Germany continue to be a member of NATO? That's a fundamental question. Can Germany continue to be a member of a treaty, a military treaty organization where the senior most member has attacked Germany, carried out an act of terrorism against Germany without any consequence? Can it be a member of an alliance that has other members such as Norway, the United Kingdom, perhaps Poland conspiring, perhaps Denmark conspiring against Germany to facilitate this American attack? And I would think that the answer is no. Germany can't continue to be a member of NATO, shouldn't be, or else Germany uh, cedes all of its sovereignty. Um, but here's another question. Can Germany continue to be a member of the European Union? When the European Union conspires with the United States to manufacture a, um, an argument that says that cheap Russian gas, and by the way, Germany needs to reflect on how it got to be such an economic power with such fine social standards. What was it that empowered Germany to have a great education system, good employment standards, high wages, nice vacations, good infrastructure? One would think that maybe the cost differential over the, that has accrued over the course of decades of buying cheap Russian gas well below the market rates has allowed Germany to accumulate significant wealth that could be invested into Germany to create these standards. And now that that wealth has, that, that, that source of the price differential has not only been stopped, but replaced by the opposite. High energy prices that is bankrupting Germany, destroying their infrastructure, destroying their economic standards, destroying their well their well their well-being as a society. Um, this was a conspiracy carried out by the United States and the rest of Europe against Germany to deny Germany what its status is the most influential, powerful economy in Europe to push back against German banks who speak of the need for a conservative fiscal policy, um, you know, in, instead of the Parisian vision of liberal fiscal policy. Um, I'm not here to argue in favor of one or the other. I'm simply pointing out that Germany had a lot of enemies in the European Union who found Germany's presence in the European Union to be inconvenient. And therefore, it appears they conspired with the United States to help undermine what was one of the principal sources of Germany's economic largesse, which was large amounts of cheap Russian gas. So can Germany be a member of the European Union? That's a fair question. Is the European Union viable after this? Is the Eurozone viable? Does Germany want to continue underwriting the Euro? Because without the German, without the German economy, the Euro cannot survive. Uh, is this something Germany wants to continue to do? What direction will Germany take? And here's the fundamental question. When you take a look at the balance of everything I just said, which nation has emerged as Germany's friend? 
and which nation has emerged as Germany's enemy? And if you answer this question honestly, Russia has emerged as Germany's true friend. The United States has emerged as Germany's true enemy. So when you speak of the forward trajectory of German geopolitical relations, it seems that the natural trajectory would be for Germany to gravitate towards Russia, which of course is the last thing the United States and uh, Europe wants, because if you link up Russia's energy with Germany's industrial capacity, you create a partnership that is unbeatable. And this might be what's really behind everything that we just talked about. Well, um, can I ask you this, um, this story with these uh, people in the boat? I mean, how realistic is that, uh, you know, after all, when you are in this like heavily guarded area, is it realistic that you can just like travel there and uh, maybe carry some explosives on board? Or is that, I mean, clearly a hoax or like a... If you're Tom Clancy and you're writing a novel, sure, it's a great story. It's wonderful. I mean, you, uh, Jean Le Carré could uh, come up with a, a theory like this. Um, and... Uh, Maybe CIA, um, um, you know, practitioners of covert art will craft this as a cover story. Um, and, and maybe it was a cover story. Maybe they, they did sail a boat with these five people on it with passports uh, to have its presence back so it could be detected. Um, but that boat did not carry out the events that took place on 26 September. First of all, understand that the kind of diving operations that we're talking about here that far underwater mm -hmm. is of a technical complexity that's beyond the capacity of a yacht with four people on it. Um, you know, Seymour Hersh speaks of the necessity of, uh, of uh, modifying the vessel that was used with the appropriate equipment to manage, um, you know, the, the, the physical um, impact of diving that deep, the nitrogen imbalance, the need for a decompression chamber, etc. Um, does this boat have a decompression chamber? Was it modified? It's missing from the story. Probably missing because the people putting together the story aren't that clever and don't understand the need to be consistent with the overall narrative of how do you get divers from the surface that deep underwater without a decompression chamber? Um, what is the training required for this? This is very specific skill set. Um, you're not, you don't just need a, you know, people who are trained to dive, equipped to dive, but handle explosives, handle sophisticated explosives. Take a look at the pipe that was blown up. It's designed to withstand a lot of things, uh, steel, concrete encased, etc. I've been involved in explosive breaching operations in a com, you know, in, in, in preparation for com. Fortunately, I never had to do it in the real world. But the, 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 you can't just slap explosive on, have it blow up and expect, expect to breach the, the, the pipe. It has to be a shaped charge specifically designed for that pipeline, specifically designed, which means you have to have intimate knowledge of the construction used in the pipeline. Um, and then you have to take that charge and you have to apply it and again, the explosives have to be modified so they can operate that level. But before you do that, you have to test it. I mean, nobody, one of the things you learn in this sort of business is the first time you use a specific breaching charge isn't when you're breaching the door down to go in after the bad guys. 
because nine times out of 10, you got it wrong and something bad's going to happen. You build it, you test it, you make sure it works, and then you use it. So this breaching charge that was put on this pipe, on these pipes, and there were multiples of them, uh, at least three, uh, and I will get to the fourth one in a minute. Um, this is not the work of some, you know, fly-by-night um, club of, uh, you know, some female doctor with her ship captain and four divers uh, who came together and said, what the heck, in the name of Slava Ukraina, we're going to go blow up the pipelines. No. The level of sophistication required for these explosive charges and the technical complexity of an underwater dive operation at that level is such that they could not do it. Where is the decompression chamber? Where is it? And the answer is no one's talking about. Now, let's get to that fourth charge here. The pipe didn't blow up. Who has that charge? Where is it? In whose possession? Uh, and here's an interesting part, because that charge, that unexploded charge, will tell us a lot about the detonator. Seymour Hirsch implies that that detonator was a sophisticated uh, device linked to specific frequencies. It would be frequency activated. Um, you don't buy that in Radio Shack. I guess we don't have Radio Shacks anymore, but uh, you, you don't buy that anywhere. That's uh, a very sophisticated piece of equipment specifically designed for a specific action, which again, is not something that people like these, um, this, this terrorist group uh, could pull off. Who has that detonator? Where is that detonator? Why haven't the details of that detonator been provided to the Germans, to anybody else? Um, and the answer is because that detonator condemns whoever pulled this off. That detonator is a unique signature of the people responsible for the attack. And that detonator has made in America written all over it. Um, and, and we can be like from the setup, is, is it, I mean, who is able to do something like that? I mean, must be some military um, group? Well, like, I mean, who, who, like, in the, if we, we're looking at all the possible, um, you know, uh, uh, groups that could do that, is, are there any private groups or, or has it, does it need to be like military um, based? According to Seymour Hirsch's uh, article, these come from, these are American divers, U.S. Navy divers who were trained specifically in Panama City to do this very kind of action. And they are the very people who could pull this off. The CIA has uh, an organization known as the Special Activities Division, uh, and part of the Special Activities Division is an organization called Sea Branch. They're the covert operations people who operate on water, hence the word Sea Branch. And they have done some interesting things over their years. If you remember the Glomar Explorer, again, Seymour Hirsch reported about this, where Howard Hughes built a giant ship that went out into the Pacific to recover a, um, a submarine. Uh, a Soviet submarine that had uh, broken up and sunk. Um, the CIA ran that operation. Sea Branch ran that operation. Um, the CIA has the ability to go out and contract people with specific skill sets. Um, and, and so, you know, they're out there, a retired Navy diver or a, um, a, uh, a diver who does underwater uh, welding, underwater repairs in support of oil rigs, uh, things of that nature, uh, salvage divers, uh, have the skill set to operate at that level. And the CIA could over time train them to operate these explosives. Um, 
But again, it's not something that happens overnight. These are skill sets that the CIA possesses, and then they put into the safe, and they spin the handle until they need it. Then they unlock the safe, they bring these skill sets out, and they use them, and then they put them back. Um, so the CIA can do this. The British have some capability. The Russians have some capability. You know who doesn't have any capability in this? The Ukrainians. Um, they don't have that skill set. It's not something they have. Now, if you're telling me that the divers date back to Soviet times and received their training under the Soviets, um, that's one thing. But now these are getting to be guys that are getting along in the tooth. I don't imagine that their bodies function well in the strains placed under deep water diving. Um, you need young, fit men uh, to do this, or women. I'm not being sexist here. You need fit individuals, physically fit individuals. Ukrainians just reopened a diver school in 2019 in Odessa. Uh, but that diver school only trains divers to operate at what they call phase one operations, that is, to a certain level, to a depth. They're not trained to operate deep underwater. So they, they say, you know, some of these people may have been Ukrainian or, you know, uh, Russian, but um, where did they get trained? How did they get trained? When did they get trained? Who trained them um, is a critical thing. And it's not just the diving. Again, we have to get into the explosives. The, the, the explosive set that was designed and used on these pipelines can only be produced by a state sponsor. Uh, this isn't something that's done by amateurs or terrorists or things. This is a very sophisticated shaped charge. Uh, and again, if you, if you buy into Seymour Hersh's reporting, and I have no reason uh, to doubt it, uh, a very specific shape charge using a very specific chemically altered explosive with a um, unique detonator. Again, this isn't something that four people cook up in a German port city while drinking uh, schnapps. Uh, this is something that um, you know professionals uh, put together with a, a very large team. The team behind this operation is significant. The people who built these explosive devices tested these explosive devices. The people who built the, the detonator tested the detonator. Uh, and the people who carried out the, you know, who put these devices on the pipeline. This is a very large team, sophisticated team. It's not something that's done by five people on a rented yacht. And how many people do you think this would, um, uh, 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 do you know, an activity like this would involve? And how long do you think they might have been training for that? I mean, for that specific thing, because that's quite intense. I mean, you're underwater and you have the specific, uh, I don't know. Well, remember that these, that there were, there were, we know that three charges were placed. Mm -hmm. um, and we assume that a fourth charge was placed that didn't go off. Um, so that's four separate dives, four separate dives. That's four teams. You're not using the same team over and over again because you can't, put them through repeated stress like that, the, the, the decompression. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. Um, so you have four teams. So right off the bat, uh, depending on the, the, the teams you're talking, four times four, that's 16 divers. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> okay, so already we've quadrupled the number of divers that they've used, but you need backups. Uh, again, uh, every plan has to have backups. So you have your your primary divers and you have your backup <laughs> divers. Now, some of the backup divers could be divers intended for the other operation, uh, but if they get used, you have to have more divers. So there's more than 16 divers. I would say that there's probably around uh, you know 24 to 30 
uh, personnel trained to do this. Uh, you need the people who uh, will assemble the explosives. This is a different category of people. These are your weaponization people. You need the people that handle the detonators and the communications involved in the detonators. And you need, you know, so you need an assembly team. They have to be there on the boat. The weapon will be assembled on the boat um, to make sure that it's done properly. Um, and then there has to be security. Uh, this Whatever vessel delivered this isn't going out there on its own. There will be security involved. There are people that are going to be monitoring communications. There are the cover stories out there. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole community of what we call open source intelligence people who sit in, I was going to say something, um, not polite, I won't say that, but they uh, they sit in the basements of their home or in their couch monitoring computers and they uh, they do things like track movements of ships. And the CIA and any, any organization like that knows this has happened. So why would you put a transponder on your ship that's carrying out this covert operation that could be detected by these private uh, people? So there's a cover story. You're going to shut down transponders. You're going to activate fake activate face, fake transponders that are going to create this artificial or this misleading electronic signal. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's involved in that. So at the end of the day, when you talk about this, this is an operation that probably involved um, well over 100 people. Well over 100 people were involved in this operation in one way or another. Um, again, not something done by five people on a rented yacht. And, and these explosives, this can only also be done in like um, military area, like, I don't know, is, is that, who, who does that in America, for instance, which, which laboratories or companies? Explosives are, you know, you have commercial grade, you have uh, military grade explosives. Um, every one of them carries, uh, for the most part, carries a unique tracker. Uh, law enforcement has insisted on that so that if explosives are used in a in a terrorist action or a criminal action, they have a unique mm -hmm. tracker that's in there that takes it back to the point of manufacture, et cetera. Um, these explosives were probably not commercially made. These explosives were purpose-made, which means you need a, um, a, a sophisticated um, explosives lab that can produce the stuff. Because remember, according to Seymour Hersh's reporting, the explosives also had to be uh, chemically altered so they could operate at depth in highly highly saline environment. That's not something that your average person does. Your average terrorist would basically take explosives from wherever they acquired them, think he's building or she's building a device, and then they would take it down underwater. I don't know how they would get underwater, but let's say they did it. Um, and it wouldn't function because the explosives, uh, you know, wouldn't function, uh, it, you know, the direct transfer uh, transferability isn't there. This is a level of sophistication that has to be done at the state level. Um, this is kind of indicator of state support. Um, and there are countries that the United States has that capability. Other countries have that capability. Um, Great Britain has that capability. I would imagine Germany has that capability. In, uh, in, in one form or another. Russia has that capability. Um, it, it, but it is, it is state controlled and it's a carefully controlled skill set. You don't want this skill set to be transferred over to civilian you know, operations because then the terrorists now can possess it and use it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
And we have a question from the audience. Like, who do you think controls this uh, kind of uniform disinformation campaign in the mainstream media? Like with the boat and these, because it's kind of pops up and then it uh, grows to other places. And uh, But it seems to be like a campaign. So people are hopping up on it, like the mainstream media. Well, what's interesting is when the attack first first took place, there was no curiosity on the part of the mainstream media whatsoever. Um, they accepted at face value uh, absurd notions that Russia did it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you remember, some of the American officials came out and said, well, Russia, Russia did this, they're the likely candidate. And the media repeated this as if that was logical. Um, even the German media was silent in terms of uh, its curiosity. And then as what normally happens in something like this is journalists have their sources in government everywhere and they start calling their sources and they, they, they start to collect information and what they got was total silence a total wall which tells you that there is a conspiracy that that was uh put up beforehand why would the swedes and the danes gather do an investigation and immediately seal the results say we can never talk about it because if we talk about it it will hurt us from a national security standpoint and then why would journalists accept this and say oh okay that's that's understandable you no journalist would accept that unless the media outlets have been subordinated to the governments and that appears to be the case all mainstream uh, outlets were silent on this literally silent seymour hirsch came out with his reporting nobody covered it look what happened how are we talking about this now the new york times received an anonymous tip from an anonymous intelligence source in the US intelligence community. And now they're running with it on a headline story. And then the Germans are doing the same thing, an anonymous tip from inside German security services. And now they're running to explain, which tells you that this isn't the product of legitimate journalism where people are asking questions. These are the journalists waiting to be told by their governments what to write, how to write it, how to shape the story because the governments don't want people asking questions, especially questions that are linked to Seymour Hersh's reporting. Uh, um, okay, like, is it, um, yeah, I mean, it seems to be pretty clear. Like, it's just like how, so do you think like Germany is under pressure? They, they are being threatened, kind of, like that if they investigate this, then what's going to happen? There, there's no, I mean, they, they cannot really uh, oppose to anything. It's, it seems there's no, no um, like, room for maneuvering, like, and being pointing out that m maybe there's questions. So it's, it's like a conspiracy also on the German side. That's what you say. It's basically the silenced or... What, what... What Have I would say is this. something. Well, it's not promised something. They owe everything to the United States. Mm -hmm. Find me a mainstream German politician who doesn't owe his or her position to the United States. The United States controls just about everything in Germany, from your economy to <clears throat> your foreign policy to your defense policy. And Everybody who is in a leadership position there was groomed by the United States from an early stage in their careers and was their, their, their rise to the top was facilitated by the United States. You don't get to be a senior German politician 
unless the United States is happy with you, unless you have done things policy-wise or in your career at another point that made the United States say, we can use that to our advantage. Um, take example, the rise of the Green Party in Germany. If you don't think the United States was behind the rise of the Green Party, then you don't understand how America works. Follow the money. Um, and so all these people who owe their positions of authority to the United States cannot now turn on the United States uh, because otherwise uh, they will lose power. And if we've learned anything about most politicians is they are cowards when it comes to doing the right thing. If doing the right thing causes them to lose the power they have hungered for so long. You don't rise to the top only to give it away in a moment of moral clarity. Mm. So these politicians have sold Germany out. And that's the danger here. Once the German people wake up and recognize that they have been sold out, not only by the United States, but by their political leadership, hopefully they will do the right thing and assert uh, German control, meaning the control of the people over their government, replace the political and economic elite with new leaders who will be more concerned about doing what's right for Germany than pleasing their American masters. So, I mean, now that maybe Germany is a little bit, I mean, there's a lot of um, people who are not so comfortable with the politics just as they are uh, developing, you know, like, I mean, there's also like a lot of people who are critical with regards to the vaccines and to the measures taken. And it's maybe a lot of them are not so outspoken, but they are sort of behind closed doors. They would talk about it and say, well, I have, I know people who got vaccine injuries and all these things kind of, uh, you know, like cutting cutting the trust uh, relationship between the government and the people. And now, do you think it might be there's there's a danger that like um, the the um, well, I mean, the government might um, come up with like uh, new strategies to form different bands like um, you know, like um, introducing like a completely new party that's not been around for a long time, you know, like, I mean, okay, the, the basis has has not been around for a long time, but it was like something, you know, the, the political uh, basic Democra democratic party um, uh, that um, has, um, you know, arisen from the, the criticism of the measures. But I mean, would not a government be inclined to maybe install now some sort of um, new um, vessel for like the criticism that they then maybe also control. I mean, that's, do you know what I'm trying to say that? Um, oh, I, I, I know exactly. It's it, it basically escalation management. The government recognizing they're in a state of crisis will do that which is necessary to divert the anger away from holding them to account and capture it elsewhere and then dissipate it. It's a, it's a, it's an age old strategy. Um, And the only thing I, I, I can say to that is uh, people need to be aware of that possibility um, and that the, the, uh, the impetus and the onus for political change has to come from down under, yeah. not, come, not, not dictated from the top down. Because anything that comes from the government isn't being done because they care about the people. It's being done because they want to preserve their hold on power. I think the the possibility to have a party which you can deal with, with a party, an organization which you can influence, which you give, can give money, uh, is a danger for democracy already. Because you don't have representatives of the people there. This is something in between the people and the government. So the parties have, are entities that are influenceable and that are bribable. 
And I think uh, this is a very dangerous thing and it's very intransparent. The parties are in competition and the personalities elected, they are member of parties. So you, you don't have this direct contact and you cannot question directly your parliamentarian because and you, you don't elect them directly, but you elect some majority party. And I think this is a, a leverage to, to influence a state very much. And uh, we have to think this over. I think we have to find new ways to have more transparency, to have more direct connection between those who represent the people and the people themselves. And um, the parties don't do this. Well, that depends no, I agree. on the concept. I, I, no, I was going to say, I, I, I agree with, uh, with, with, that, with that theory. Um, you know, but here's the problem that um, the people, and I'm not picking on the German people, but I am, um, just like I pick on the American people. We, we become very, um, we're consumer oriented and we get wrapped in a cocoon of comfort. And as long as the parties keep us comfortable, we don't, we don't want to rock the boat. Um, what's happening now, I believe, is that uh, the, the, the people have been, their cocoon of comfort has been broken. And they're starting to wake up to uh, the fact that they are not being well served by the system. But as uh, Dr. Woodard said, uh, the system isn't responsive to them. And they've just, they're waking up to the fact that, hey, I want to hold my elected representative accountable, but I can't because the system's been designed so that I can't do that. I'm held prisoner by political parties yes. that provide a buffer between me and the elected people. Yes. Um, but the only way for change to occur is this awakening. Is, you know, is is awakening. So I do believe that because of government uh, malfeasance in the in the pandemic, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to get into that because I'm not a scientific expert, but I do agree that governments have misled the people. That I 100% agree with. Um, and now we have the the case of, you know, America's attack on Germany, um, and I think people are waking up that the government is not their friend. The government is not responsive to them. The government is working for other interests beyond the German people. And um, and maybe that it's time for the German people to redefine their relationship with government. I don't know how that's done because I'm not an expert on uh, German, you know, political systems. But you are, and um, you know. and you've identified the problem. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I have faith in your ability to come up with, you know, the the appropriate mechanisms of 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 of, of change. But you can't do that until the people wake up. And I do think right now that you're starting to see an awakening. And the German people. Yes, if if you want to influence the population, a whole state, it's much easier if you have a state where you just need to influence the bosses. When you have a state where the people don't believe their bosses, where they mistrust, a state with corruption, where the people know my government is corrupt, they don't believe, they don't trust the government. They try to find ways around all the time. They are, they are weak states. They are, they are states that are not very stable, but they are where there is a lot of corruption with, with clerks and with, with in, in the administration. And so everyone tries to get what he, what he needs. But there is no big organization which is responsible for that because it's the habit to, to do it like that. Such a state is much more resilient when another state wants to wants to to influence it because the other state they would have to go to each of them to all of the people 
But if there is a state where the people obey, where they think, yes, there's my party, and what my party says is right, you only need to get the, the party leaders. Right. It's much easier. If you want to bribe, always bribe the boss. Okay, but uh, Wolfgang, what I think is, you know, if you only have, like, I mean, say, for instance, these direct candidates, yeah, it's maybe harder to do that, but then it's also, like, not so easy for the candidates to to uh, unite, like, a larger group of people behind them, you know, because you might have, like, different, um, uh, you know, approach of this direct candidate and another one and so on. I think, yes, you know, the important yeah. thing to me is, like, really that you have, like, a connection to the members and they should be able to say what's yes. going on. They have to tell, would... they have to re be able to recall these people if they do something, like, really bad. Yes. And also they yes. have to be involved in, like, major decisions. And I think that has to be done, like, in a constant basis. And I think that's then really hard to do. Um, you know, then you might even, okay, try to bribe the, the boss. But then if the boss is, um, there has to be, have to be mechanisms that you then have to involve the, the flock, the members, and they have to tell you, okay, it's not going in that direction. We're not going to, uh, I don't know, say, uh, yeah, we want to have, like, weapon deliveries into, like, uh, Ukraine or whatever. So I think that's, there has to be, like, some sort of, uh, you know, some, some, some loop, feedback loop between the members of a party and, uh, and you know, the, the, the ruling committee, basically. And I think that is completely cut off with, like, the standard yes. um, parties. There is, there is another factor which is very important. This is the factor that a society has to organize with according to the subsidiarity principle. So that you, that you have those people, let the people do what they can do and that you only interfere in the next level when they cannot manage anymore. Because when you want democracy, you need subsidiarity. There is no democracy if the society is not organized to this, according to the subsidiarity principle. It's not possible. You cannot have a democracy in a people which 80 million people with 80 million inhabitants. It's not possible. You have to have a, a scale. You, we have the we have in the communities. We have in the lender. We have in, we we are a federal republic is already organized according to a subsidiarity principle, but it doesn't function anymore. Now the European Union tells us how to produce uh, meat. And we all have to obey. Yeah, it's a big problem. And tells us, <laughs> when, tells us that what, what is the dangerous for our people when there comes a virus. We, the WHO wants to make it for the whole world. This is a nonsense. The doctor who is responsible for public health in a region he knows when people are, what to do when people are endangered. It's his daily work. But they just want to take it away. They want to, 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 to monopolize it and to centralize it. And this does, is not because of this. They don't do it before, because of health. They do it because of power. Yeah, that's well, that's a problem. Um, Scott, since I, I uh, know you have to go soon, um, I have two more questions from the audience. Um, one question is that could it be that Russia has essential military and intelligence knowledge, knowledge that will be played out in due course? And if so, why would they wait so long? Well, let's just assume for a second that Russia has the perfect intelligence system and they've gathered all the information. And I as a former intelligence officer, I don't believe in perfect intelligence systems, <laughs> and uh, there's never perfect intelligence. We, uh, we gather what we gather, we assess, we make mistakes, uh, it happens all the time. But for Russia to have, let's say Russia 
hypothetically has an intelligence source in the Swedish uh, security services that is knowledgeable of the contents of the Swedish investigation. Um, Russia can't release that information because they give up their source. Um, and it's, you know, that, that's part of the tricky part of the intelligence business is that you're using mechanisms to gather information that if discovered, close down this, uh, this, this ability. And I would imagine if Russia recruited somebody in the Swedish security service, that was a long-term recruitment looking for long-term benefits. So I think that Russia has been empowered with information. I believe their intelligence service has certain capabilities. Um, I don't think it's a perfect picture that Russia has, but it's a picture that gives their political uh, leadership enough confidence to, uh, to speak decisively on the subject without providing details, because you can't provide the details. The moment the, the Russians would say, we know X, the counterintelligence services of every nation would go, how do they know that? And then they'll reverse engineer it. And there's a risk that your source will be found out. So Russia can't commit to specific knowledge. They can only speak of generic confidence. And that's what I think is happening right now. Okay. Um, last question. The new narrative, false or not, wants to blame Ukraine and exonerate Russia. Um, do the U.S. Uh, want to end the war in, in Ukraine? What do you think? This is a fascinating question. Um, I mean, I, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an extraordinarily fascinating question because um, two things. One, if the United States, let's say Ukraine did this, let's hypothetically say that this was, you know, the Ukrainians doing this. The United States has a large strategic objective at play here called the strategic defeat of Russia. All right. And so when you have this big picture objective, you're not going to let little things like this get in the way, meaning that this information should never be made public. If, in fact, this happened, I, if I were the national security advisor, I'd be calling up the Germans saying, you can't release this information. Um, you have to seal it, boom. Because our goal is to use the Ukrainians as a vehicle for a proxy conflict for the strategic defeat of Russia. If you release this information, people begin to question what we're doing with Ukraine and should we continue to support them. So the fact that this is there tells me that it's not true information or, or you know, it, it's not genuine. This is a cover-up designed to do a couple of things, deflect blame away from the United States and put it, direct it onto Ukraine in a manner that promotes the questioning of the legitimacy of the continued um, uh, you know, support. Already you have German officials saying, if this is true, we have to question our decision to support them or continue to support them militarily. And the same thing, the United States, if they pursue this, would say, um, you know, the Republicans in Congress will say, well, we, we, we can't. So I think you're beginning to see the, the start of a campaign, a propaganda campaign, mm -hmm. targeting the Ukrainians that creates political cover uh, for the failure in Ukraine. The bottom line is Russia's winning this war. Russia's going to win this war, and there's nothing the West can do to stop it. So rather than, you know, the West has put itself in a political trap where they've trapped themselves in the corner where they have to continue supporting Ukraine because they've committed so many resources, unless the miracle story comes up that says, maybe the Ukrainians are the bad guys all along. Maybe we shouldn't be supporting them, and maybe we're going to shut down our military support 
So when they lose the war, everybody says, well, they lost the war because of a lack of military support. We all can say, well, they didn't deserve the military support because they attacked Germany. So I think this is this could be uh, something going. But it's a fascinating question because that's an interesting part of the story that um, that doesn't make too much sense unless it's, it's an designed to break up relations with uh, Ukraine. Because if it was true, we would hide that. We would not want this information released. So the fact yes, and that it's reported. And Germany would still be happy to be a friend of the United States. Of course, after we stab you in the back, yes, because because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not. Uh, never mind. I'm not going to say. I've, I've said many critical things about Germany, and I grew up in Germany, and I love Germany, and I, I'm I'm sickened by what's happening here, and the fact that my country could attack you like that uh, bothers me, and it bothers me that the German people aren't um, aren't showing the amount of outrage that I I, I would have thought would have been, and. Um, but we'll see. I think I think there's an awakening, and and, and we'll see where this goes. I, I again, I don't want to be critical of Germany or the German people because I have a lot of uh, emotional attachment to uh, to to Germany. Well, we can see it's like a hot hot ride that the U.S. or like the uh, the or the the parties involved in this kind of uh, conflict or like pretended, uh, I don't know, like, I mean, false flag or whatever has been going on there now, um, or like deflecting kind of thing. It's like a, it's a, it's not an easy, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very, it's a tough game they're playing. Yeah. So it's, it's a, there's a lot at stake for them also if they get uh, really like, if it blows up completely or, you know, I mean, the cover up blows up or whatever. It's like, a, seems to be like a very, it's a fascinating story with a lot of aspects to it and might as well blow up in their face whoever did it yeah so interesting wow i mean that's a, that's amazing that uh, i mean <clears throat> just like before you uh, you know you've uh, shone, shone a lot of light on on like the things going on and uh, it's very um, informative and, and inspirational to talk to you i think it's uh, yeah so we're going to stay in touch and we're going to observe it with your help like what's and interpret it with your help what's going on there so thanks okay. ever so much Thank you very much. Thank you very well, much. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to uh, continued cooperation with you. Super. Thanks so much. Yeah, fascinating. That's why. Yeah, fascinating. That was Scott Ritter. He is a former uh, member of the uh, United States Marine Corps uh, Secret Service, and um, interesting what he told us. The uh, whole story remains interesting and we'll uh, stay abreast of it and we'll see how things pan out. So today we're at the end of the session, a bit earlier than usual, and well, I wish everyone a, a nice Friday evening and a good weekend, and as always, I would like to appeal to you uh, to support us in our work, um, because we started the archive, corona-minus-auschus.org slash archive, where we're putting the transcripts, uh, where we're putting all the sessions, and we still need help in um, post-editing the transcripts. So if you wish to do that, please come forward and uh, contact us at corona-auschus.de um, um, at um, archive. Um, so we would like to uh, collate um, 
information here so that uh, legal experts can fall back on it, um, but also that historians can use it when looking back in times to come. So I think it's a very important thing and uh, that's where our time and money goes. So thank you very much for watching and see you again next week. See you then. Goodbye.